Hello class, welcome to Herptology 101. I'm your teacher, Megan. Tonight, we are gonna study the most dangerous snake of all, the snack. Now, before we go into the lab and take a look at snack, who does not want to be stepped on, there are a couple of rules that you might know. First of all, number one, snack, who does not want to be steppied upon, may use strong language that may not be suitable for all students and that viewer's discretion is advised. He is quite the fan of uh, adult content and swearing because he does not want to be stepped on. Second of all, Snack is kind of an asshole. Snack likes to throw out spoilers for any and all anime, including Laughing Under the Clouds, where his ancestors from. So if you have yet to watch any anime series or Laughing Under the Clouds, please wait and come back. Snack has no mercy. Snack no want to be stepped on. Ooh, ooh. And finally, remember that all opinions expressed here do not reflect the Dub Talk Herptology department as a whole, nor does it represent Snack. With that being said, we're gonna walk inside now and please remember, ooh, ooh, don't step on Snack, hiss, hiss. With that being said, if anybody would like to ditch out of here, we have a wooing classes down the hall in Furry 101. I'm ready to discuss. Hide the dragon, the anime. It's a snake, jackass. <laughs> it's a dragon snake. Have you Who's ready to play Secret Tunnel? <laughs> Who's ready to play Tunnel Snake? Don't, don't, let, it, don't let it eat its own tail. Don't let the snack. No step on snack. <laughs> Please, no steppy. <laughs> Please, no step on snack. God damn it. That's, just currently... that's like that's just the secret title for this episode. No step on snack. <laughs> no, I'm also currently gonna be recording in my kigu, so this is gonna be fun. Oh, good lord! I'm in Steph's... the kigu. I'm in the kitty kigu. All right, so let me let me start and stop laughing. No, okay. <laughs> laughing under the clouds. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> you asshole! <laughs> Should I know what I'm tempted to do this intro as now? No, no, it's over now. Just jump. No, fuck off. <laughs> no, I was tempted to do it in the ooh-woo, no steppy on snack voice. God damn it. That's how I'm doing that's how I'm doing this now. Hello, fellow viewer! Welcome to Dump Talk Woo-Woo! The show where a group of friends get together <laughs> and laugh their asses off! In the face of unspeakable trauma and giant murdery oh. demons. Hello, I am your host, Megan. And tonight, I am joined by my brother, Noah. Megan, I thought we had a strict no drinking rule for tonight. You, you promised me. Did you no get up the hoosh you were covering? <laughs> my brother, Hardy. Uh, what? <laughs> And the the uh, the sneaky, unsuspecting ninja staff. God damn it! I don't know. This is the thing that we're not changing right the opening. We're just keeping it. I, I don't. Think I am sorry to the point. editor of this episode. No, you're, you're probably not. the don't, editor, don't, staff. Don't, don't no, I'm lie. not. I got other shit to edit. Don't lie. The, the editor, we do not feel sorry for you at all. In fact, we, we wish you even I'm more sorry. Here, let, let's get, please, let's get some please fog no horn step, and some clown please horn. No please no step on editor. <laughs> I'm please so no sorry on this. editor. Alright. So, uh, to rein it back in. 
tonight, if you can't tell by our uproarious laughter, we are talking about the 2014 anime Laughing Under the Clouds, a samurai action anime done by everyone's favorite fluffy, warm, cutesy girl, potentially pedophilic studio, Dogokobo. Surprise! Ice! There is a time. There comes a time in every young Dobokobo's life where they must God experiment a little bit. God and damn it. when they get deep into their Meiji restoration phase, they go in hardcore before they circle back around into Except making- Except for this was totally before things like New Game, Uzumade, Wada 10, Token Rampu Hanamaru. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Uh, so tonight I am in fact, like I said, joined by Noah, Hardy, and Steph. Yeah. Um, yes. And if you could not tell by the actual seriousness of the opening tone of this, this is actually a classics episode. Because <laughs> this I'm is not our lives work. For five years it's been, right? It's been five years since this show ran. I'm getting to that! <laughs> I mean... You're jumping uh, the gun, Noah. You or maybe jumping the snake, I don't know. How does that You're jumping... work? Please stop jump. No jumpy over snack. What was the name of White Snake's ninth album again? Slide it in, <laughs> and it was the sixth album. That was the sixth album. Thank you. Oh, You're gonna get get your Bible down. black references light. All right, so this is the classics episode. I'll get to why. So, but uh, as you, if you don't know, before I get to why this episode is a classics episode, uh, there's usually a, a small rule, which is at least the person hosting has to be a really b familiar with the series, which I am. Um, and at least some of the members have never even seen the show or have never seen the dub. Hi. Hardy is the only other person on this episode who has seen the show all the way through. Hi. Until I tonight. I've only seen, like, one episode, like, five years ago, and then I never <laughs> picked it up again until today. And Noah's the other, uh, victim. And the reason I picked Noah and Hardy is because this is a series about brotherhood, and these two are about the closest thing I have to brothers. Hardy, come here, my brother. Come give then, me a manly hug. Embrace me, brother. Brother, there's a straw in your eye. Hey. You're here, <laughs> Steph, you're here, to fill, you're here to fill our creepy ninja quota. How am I creepy? You're here because I love you. Okay. And you're my lesbian. Oh, okay, that's fine. We're lesbians, it's fine. Now, ironically enough, for a show, for a Dobokoba show, there's actually very little lesbianism in this show. But there is potentially some gays. Um, potentially. At least in oh, my head. It with gays. That's fine. So, the, everybody is asking, why the hell is this show a classic? So let me give you a plot synopsis as of the back of my Funimation DVD copy. And then I will get into why this is a classics episode. Under the cloudy skies of the turn of the century, Japan, three brothers shine brightly. Orphaned at a young age, the responsibility of providing for the Kumo family fell to eldest brother Tenka. A skilled sword fighter and a proud guardian of his rambunctious younger siblings, Soramaru and Chutaro, Tenka Kuma walks through life with unfailing optimism and a devotion to his family. But heavy clouds are beginning to settle over their secluded shrine, a growing gloom that signals the return of the deadly serpent known as the Orochi. As the Japanese military's Yamainu squad searches for the serpent's human vessel, the unrest caused by strict laws of the Meiji era spread spreads rebellion across the countryside. As the Kumo's family ancient connection to the Orochi comes to light, old rivalries will be reignited and the brothers' carefree life will give way to the darkness of an ancient prophecy. As long as they skip together, what's the worst that could happen? A lot, a lot clearly. A lot! The answer is a lot! Um, the answer is if you do not cry by the end of episode 5, you are a soulless monster. And episode 6 will probably destroy you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Episode si episode six, aka <laughs> you thought this was a comedy anime. <laughs> Whoops. 
Also, I can break these cuffs. <laughs> you can't break those cuffs. Because I fucking can. I can break these cuffs! <laughs> cuffs? What are these cuffs you speak of? Eat your heart out, Kirito. Um. <laughs> for anybody who doesn't get that joke, and this can get cut out, this is at least for Hardy and Noah. Um, there's an episode of Sword Art where they literally break out of jail by slamming chains against each other, and it makes no fucking sense. Wow. And the entire time we were watching that episode and on the Discord, I kept screaming in all caps on the chat, I can break these cuffs. <laughs> I can break these cuffs. These cuffs? Can't, can't break, break those cuffs. cuffs. It was kind of hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. We were all just like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'd like to point out that Tenka breaks those cuffs at least twice. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, so everyone's, as I ramble on, everybody's like, why the hell is this a classics? I've never even heard of this fucking show. First of all, one, shame on you. Uh, second of all... We gotta rewind time to the year of 2014, where things were only slightly less depressing. Back in 2014, a small independent show came out by a small independent director named Shinichiro Watanabe called Space Dandy. And if you're asking what Space Dandy has to do with anything, I'm getting a to lot. that. A lot, actually. So back when Space Dandy was coming out, it did this really weird thing that hadn't really been... Okay, well, it had been done before, but not a lot. Where Space Dandy was airing before it came out in Japan in English. In fact, it did it through all of its run for two seasons. And that happened in the winter of 2014 and the summer of 2014. So, then came October. And Funimation put an announcement up on their blog that they were going to try simulcasting a dub. And, well, now that's common these days. But back five years ago, that is crazy talk. And it's a shame that they only did one show that season, guys. Two. Steph. Psychopath Steph. season two doesn't two. exist. Yes, it fucking does. <laughs> All right, it uh, does. There's been there's systematic Steph, amnesia, Stephanie. That just look here. Up. You know someone's gonna bring it up. <laughs> Steph, let me have my fucking joke. Shh. No, you can't. I'm the killjoy. It's fine. Somebody put well, her you, back in jail. You really are Tenka, aren't you, Lilac? No, you're Tenka Noah. I, my, Soromaru is my spirit animal. First right? of all, one, Soromaru is my Patronus. Second of all, I'm getting there. <laughs> okay, so in all seriousness, uh, Funimation decided that they were going to simulcast dub two shows, one of them being the absolutely atrocious Psychopath Season 2, and the other one was this show. <laughs> and the rest was history. It would only be a season later before the greater simuldub initiative would get started. This is one of the simuldubs that predates a lot of your favorite ones, like Assassination Classroom, Death Parade, Tokyo Ghoul Rude, um, Yuri Kumarashi, Maria the Virgin Witch, uh, Yona, Yona of the Dawn, Dawn all would come out the following season. And a lot of people were like, why the hell does nobody remember this show? And we actually look into it. This aired in the same season as such other heavy hitters like Your Lion April. Which, yeah, that kind of condemns the show that's going up against it to complete Then there obscurity. was Garly Animation. There's a lot of really good shows that came out in the winter, the so fall long. of the fall season of 2014. But enough rambling, this intro has gone on long enough! Time to actually talk yeah. about that. So tonight, yeah. we will be talking about the entire 12 episode run of the original Laughing Under the Clouds anime. Uh, as of this time, there's actually a film called Laughing Under the Clouds Gaiden, which I believe takes place after the series. But it, number one, is not dubbed, and two, was not picked up by Funimation. It was picked up by Eleven Arts. And I went up to their booth at Anime Boston and said, get the original cast back or I'm not buying it. Please I'm do actually, it. Actually, Please do I, I'm sorry to, well, actually you, but the film okay. is supposed to take place Four. before the events of the original series. I take it back. I take that back. 
So basically, the, this, the instances that we saw in episode 7 during that flashback sequence from the last There's time also some stuff that happens after, I think. So There's some stuff out there, yeah. too. There's also a live-action movie that I think came out last year. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. but I don't think anybody has the rights to the live-action. <laughs> Probably not. No, that, that's... I'm, I'm sorry, if, if you like stuff like the live-action Roni Kenshin or the live-action Attack on Titan stuff, I'm sorry, it, it's not my personal bag. I don't know if it is for okay, you Okay, look, either. nobody likes the live-action Attack on Titan movies. They are atrocious. I have the first I saw one. the second one out of context with a friend, and let me tell you, there was a scene in that movie that made me laugh my ass off. I have the first one, and it was a Christmas present from my grandmother. <laughs> of all people. Oh, hey, way back God. on track. That is... That is the equivalent of, like, a really well-meaning but woefully underinformed grandma buying a Disney sequel for their kid in the 2000s. She also got me your name the next year, so. On second Speaking thought, of people with grandma, names, let's talk about our director and writer. <laughs> Segway. Segway! As this is going to be a classics episode and a review, there will be no predictions. Uh, tonight, we are just strictly discussing the performances of the actors, as well as critiquing the writing and direction of this. To speak about who the writer and the director is... Uh, let's roll back the clock because this is a combo we have not seen in years for, for reasons. Our director of the show is one Mr. Joel McDonald, and our writer is one Mr. J. Michael Tatum. Joel McDonald, you'll know for doing the direction work on such series as Dead Man Wonderland, Good Luck Girl, and Subasa's Spring Thunder. J. Michael Tatum has written series such as the first two seasons of Attack on Titan, the first series of Steinsgate, and Garo the Animation. Uh, now I will say I tried as best I can to get roles for everybody before 2014 when this came out just to give everybody a better uh, set of what what these people had done up to this point. Um, cool. Just because, uh, as, if you don't know, Simuldubs, Simuldubs as an initiative uh, launched a lot of people's careers, catapulted people up, but it also caused a couple of changes that causes us to lose some people not as yeah. actors but as writers and directors mm -hmm. um and if you want to see a really really good video on the effects of simuldubs as a whole uh the cartoon cypher has a really freaking fantastic video out on it and you should mm -hmm. go watch it and subscribe to the channel because they're great guys yeah give those guys a lot more subs they definitely deserve it they, they go aj into a lot and abe abe deserve all your love and attention and support <laughs> Also, Funimation released their own video uh, for My Hero Academia that was a behind-the-scenes yes. that's also really good. Yes. Let's see here. About the direction sounded okay. And I think... Here is my honest opinion going back and re-watching this all over again. Um, episode 1 sounds kind of rough. Even now. Uh, it just... And I think that's what kept me from really getting serious into the show until about a year or so later. Um, it, it it sounds it was you could tell it was definitely one of the first simul dubs because there are a lot of awkward pauses and during the first few episodes there are a lot of uh, performances that don't sound one hundred percent and gradually as the show goes on you can see them slowly start to improve as they were recording this week by week and so yeah I think it starts out rough directing wise it does get better. Writing-wise, um, I have always been a little bit critical of Tatum for throwing in the slang that really doesn't belong, and there's a little bit of that here. Like, there are definitely some phrases people would not use in the Meiji period, but but 
you know, in, in some cases it does work because it helps lighten the mood because you can't have everyone talking prim and proper during, like they would during the Meiji period. <laughs> and so British kind you of could try. Yeah. No, I think it, it strikes a delicate balance where some lines certainly don't belong, but then others, they may seem like they don't belong, but they still work in context because they help to lighten the mood. And so, yeah, I don't think this is a perfect dub. You can definitely tell that it was an early simul dub and they hadn't really uh, mastered their art just yet. But as you watch the show's progression, you can definitely tell that they get stronger. So that's what I have to say. I honestly have to agree with a lot of points that Hardy said. At the end of the day, in terms of the, the dub itself for the show, it's, it's a solid effort. Absolutely a solid effort. But... Given that it is basically among one of the first simuldubs at that time, you're going to run into some kinks along the way and some rough patches to try and figure out where things are progressing. And, um, I mean, this is a new venture, and with a show like this, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and um, parts of it kind of showed in some of the performances. There's one in particular I'm going to have to discuss later. Um, but I think part of the problem with this this particular show being one of the, among the first of the simuldub era is Laughing Under the Clouds didn't exactly know what it wanted to be at first. <laughs> Are you talking about as a show itself or as a show itself? itself. As okay. a show itself. Because for me... My experience with this, I watched one episode of the simuldub back in the day. And because, one, I didn't know what it was trying to do. Two, unfortunately, there was one performance in particular that kind of just threw me off and I wasn't a fan of. I just didn't want to watch anymore until today. And, um, yeah, I mean, it can, it's a little rough to start with going into it. But I think after probably like episode four when we get to episode four and it really starts like actually going into what the story is and what it wants to do that's when it really starts to pick up a bit and i can see it flowing a lot better but the first few episodes are a little bit rough um in terms of the dub itself because nobody knows what the hell the story is going to go for um and in terms of the writing itself it's a tatum script it's what we all know and love sometimes hate however at the same time, some of those Tatum quirks for the script that we will sometimes see in there that people that some people will like disagree with and not be huge fans of actually to me kind of work. Um, some of the little weird weird lines and some little fun moments, they work for me when it becomes a comedic moment. For example, when Tenka talks about having some cashew. <laughs> That actually made me laugh because of the, of the comedic moment and the comedic timing of it. And I think it was, there were some more of those little eccentricities, but they were used for comedic effect, which didn't bother me all that much. But when the tonal shift definitely happened and after, I believe it's episode five, when that tonal shift like kicks it into high gear while it still has those comedic moments and those eccentricities, it still maintains the dramatic tonal effect. And I think that's where the writing, I think, really shines. Um, but yeah, and performance-wise, it's a very interesting cast, especially for the three brothers. 
And we're obviously we're gonna eventually gonna talk about that, but Joel, you madman, back in 2014, you madman. Um, I think for now that's all I really gotta say about it. It's a solid effort for sure, but it's so a little rough. It's a little rough mostly because of the of the, the time period that's coming in in terms of would, the dubbing. Would you call Tatum's little quirks? So would you call those Tateisms? See, I was trying to call them Tateisms, but you, as you can probably tell, my tongue gets tied up a little bit. Right. So that's why. <laughs> I'm actually going to be the one to disagree with uh, both Lilac and Hardy, um, mostly on the fact that this suffers from being the first of the simul dubs. I disagree a bit. Now, it's true that the show doesn't quite know what it wants to be in terms of um, pitch and style because. Okay, this takes place during the Meiji Restoration, which, if you know your history, is a time period where basically the Western world was coming barging in in Japan, so a lot of their old ways were dying off as new ways were being adopted. In this case, we're seeing the death of the samurai clan, which no longer have fealty to their households, and now what are all those old samurai supposed to be doing anymore? But in this new world where everything is kind of being governized and the whole country is being united instead of being individual city-states, they are treated like criminals because they don't have a house to pledge fidelity to anymore. So in that sense, it's a really dark time in Japan's history, a lot of upheaval going on. So they're trying to, the, the manga was based on, and by default the anime, is a reflection of trying to make it more accessible to a modern audience. So they treat it like a shonen series, pretty much. There's a lot of goofy characters, there's a lot of goofy lines, there's a lot of genre mixing to try to make that change of time periods more palatable to a modern audience. And I think it does a pretty admirable job. Like, I get the idea about some of the characters who we interact with who used to be samurai, but why they're pissed off because their gerbs got taken away by the restoration of the country. So as for the actual dub, like what they actually did with this, I do agree that Tatum's writing... Uh, it, it ditches the period formality of the time period because just because the country went through some change doesn't mean everyone instantly starts using slang and vernacular speaking styles. But he definitely plays that up with most of the characters. Um, mostly to keep it loose and fun, like you did say, Lilac. And as for the direction, it there is an attempt to add local flavor to the accents because all the characters are kind of set in this... Not backwater city, like it's a moderate-sized town, but they're, they're it's mostly. A little, it's a village. It's like a little village it, outside of a much larger town, a much larger city in yes. And most of the most of the characters are farmers or uh, people of a religious sect, like the three brothers. And those who aren't, who have the least formal dialects, are members of the army, who are the least japanified-looking people. Like they dress in Prussian-style uh, military garb, which is a heavily influence of the time period that they were set in. So I do think that Joel's direction of the characters, like who gets the most accents or who gets the goofiest dialogue, is a good reflection about the change of cultures that's going on during the time period. And I didn't really think it was that rough in the beginning. Like maybe I just didn't pick up on it because I was so intrigued by the clash of cultures going on the time period and learning who all of these characters are because they throw a lot of characters at you in that first episode. It's just interesting to watch, and as it goes further along, I think most people are going to get a bigger sense of the major conflict, because we don't really learn about the Vessel of the Orochi, which I misheard as the Vessel of the Orochi early on. Oh until my. a couple of... <laughs> That's why I wrote in my notes. I said, wait, the Vessel of the Orochi? What's going on in Japan? Oh my god. Yeah, Meiji period was some rough stuff, dude. <sighs> 
Noah, Noah, I never claimed to be a saint. Noah, you should totally watch Meji Tokyo Renko, which is just basically a Meji reverse harem. Add, add that to my list right after Token Rambu. Yay! <laughs> it's on there, yeah. okay. But to Token Rambu's the one with all the authors, isn't it? No. Get out! Get the That's fuck off my get the fuck off my episode! I, I, I haven't Yeah. Ha I never claimed to be an expert. What the, wow. the hell out of my episode? Why it's, is he here again? It's t because I'm the history buff and I have to pretend like we have some class in this show. <laughs> also because he's contractually obligated. Contractually he's contractually obligated. obligated. This is like an what artist is like an artist is signed to said you need X amount of records to fulfill your contract, so they put out a Christmas album to fill that in. Spidey bells, Spidey bells swinging through. <laughs> Damn it. We will do a podcast. We will do a dub talk episode on Spider Verse one of these days. Just you wait and see. Can we please it's, for shits and giggles? That's one of the few that I'm okay it's with that best happening. Best isekai anime ever. Best Hell isekai yeah. anime ever. Only, Amen. Only, only if when they eventually, if somehow by the grace of God, they they ever dub Mao Dao Zushi, that I get to fucking do that as an episode. Please let me. God please let it. me dub my gay Chinese cartoon. Back to the point of this whole thing. I, I'm actually more. I, I'm not as inclined to be as rough on the t on the time period that the simul dub happened. And now there's a chance that because I was watching the home video release, that there's some parts of the simul dub that they cleaned up for home video release. Um, um, actually, I should thank Megan because uh, this was a Christmas present from Megan. I bought, bought two different people copy. on this episode this for Christmas. That she did, and we would have watched it anyway. But the fact that she bought I literally that was, bribe like, people with nicer. copies of the show. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's... motherfucker, watch it. <laughs> well, now, now we have. Now you're contractually obligated to watch this. <laughs> so, as the whole point is, I do disagree with Hardy and Lilac a little bit about the fact that this was one of the earliest Simul Doves and therefore it sounds the roughest. I don't quite think so. I think it's a very distinct kind of show because we don't. When we get period shows like this. They're not usually the kind of things that catch on really heavily. Um, like, you know, the Dawn did catch on a bit, but it's not as big as um, like a shonen show would or a romance show or a harem show exactly. So the fact that they're allowed to be a little more loose with the writing of the dialogue in terms of like it doesn't sound serious all the time kind of plays up to its advantage. They're allowed to be loose and fun with it, and I commend them for that. Me being the host of this 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 episode, you would think I'd watch the show as it was airing. I didn't. Um, surprise! Heathen! So, no, I, I don't even remember how I bought this show. I think I ended up buying it, um... Didn't you blind yeah, buy I it? Yeah, I blind bought this. I remember I, I blind bought this, uh, because it was on... It was a few years ago. It was, no, it was on a clearance sale at Funimation last year. Um, Ooh. Funimation was doing, like, a spring cleaning sale, and I needed to get to, like, free shipping or something, and I was like, oh, well, I'm, like, buying, like, Part two of Hyoka, or like part two of Ghost, like part two of Snow White. Let me get something that I've never seen before, and and this stood out to me. And I was like, oh, okay, this this looks like a, a good time. Um, and then we were going to a convention last year, and uh, my original brilliant plan was to stay up all night watching Golden Kamui, and then using this as a cleanser show from the absolute violence that was Golden Kamui. Except for that was a mistake. Except for the Funimation PS4 app never ended up working, so I still haven't actually watched Golden Kamui. Um. So I watched this, and I fell absolutely in love with it. I, I, one, this is one of my all-time favorite anime now. Like, I, I fucking love this show. This show, wow. this show gets, gets a lot, gets me a lot. Um, 
One of them being, like, an actual legitimate, like, portrayal of a character with, like, some straight-up PTSD that isn't laughed at. Like, Sora, Sora's yeah. goes through some shit, guys. Um, yeah. The, po- the that, poor kid. That poor child. Um, but one of the things I, I genuinely really liked about watching it was I really, really like this dub. I... I, I, I'm more inclined to agree with Noah because I never watched the simuldub and there's there's maybe one performance I have an overt issue with. And that's not because the actor is bad, but because of what they made them do. And it's something that we've had a problem with in other simuldubs that came out much, much, much later than this simuldub did. Um, I think the, the writing is very Tatum. It is, this is, you could tell this is a fucking Tatum show. This is a Tatum dub. Oh, absolutely. Like, there is, there is no buttering up, like, this is a, this is a Tatum, a a Tatum Rinjo. And I actually think it really works in this case, where, thank you, where this, this is a lot like Assassination Classroom to me, where sometimes you don't think it should fit, but it really works with the tone of the show. And can yeah, balance. like it really does. And can ba- which uh, which of all things that was a another combination of the same director and same writer. Obviously, with mm-hmm. Afia Yu also being the assistant to season one, and then uh, fully taking over from Joel in season two. Um, mm-hmm. But they, the writing on this really really does work for me. There there are times where I think Noah really gets it. Where like. Certain characters do speak a lot more formally based on their education and where they are in societal hierarchy. Uh, the Yama Inu squad, especially their leader, uh, Sose, has a very formal way of speaking compared to uh, somebody like uh, Takamine. Or Tenka. Tenka, Tenka kind of has it a little bit, depending on... But Tenka is a lot, very more informal because of his personality, not his upbringing. Because right. Tenka is chaotic good, the character. Um, Tenka, <laughs> Tenka's a trip. Um, I, I I would go drinking with that man. Like like he is. He, the, no the drinking for drinking no buddy. drinking for Tenka. He's in recovery. I know. <laughs> Until the last episode. It's no no hooch no hooch. You're recovering. Which is also my favorite <laughs> thing is that they don't call it they don't ever call it alcohol. They just keep calling it hooch. Um, Sora Tenka's off the wagon again. again. <laughs> You're a catastrophe. You're a stick. <laughs> there's there's a couple of like I think I started texting Lilac just some of my favorite like written one-liners some on one-liners, the show. Yep. So you so you're a demon. That'll take a lot so that'll take a lot more to get rid of me. Okay, he already the demon fucker. Um <laughs> Now see that's a good point is that the, the dialogue that that certain characters have is pretty is perfectly fitting for Tatum's particular yeah. style of writing because also it's, it's fun um, and loose. one of my favorite other lines is i think it's an episode two, yeah i think it's an episode two uh where somebody's like you're uh uh you're not the law you're pissing the law off it's also one of my favorite oh, yeah. favorite lines but no i but the thing i really want to compliment is the actual honest to god casting of this show this is a cast that i don't think you would see you didn't see a lot of a cast like this back in 2014 this was no. this was an era that was a lot more favored to other actors. And especially the three leads on this show, they were some of the most it, it I still think it's one of the most out of the box leads lead combinations mm-hmm. that Definitely. in the Funimation Simuldub era, which is saying a lot because there have been some pretty 
whacked out leading. <laughs> oh yeah. There have been some pretty pretty nutty casting, and I I think that this is a really good thing. And this is also to me one of my favorite things about Joel McDonald dubs, where that his casting was something that you could never lock down. He was uh, he, he and Sonny Strait were both like that a lot. Yeah, he Absolutely. and Sonny Strait were very very hard to put down and. Sometimes it absolutely failed. What was Sonny's first simul dub that wasn't Maria? Um, Nikagata School Suite. Yeah, Mikaraga School Suite was not a dub that a lot of people liked. But it's okay. He eventually did Yura and Ice, and it was like, holy shit. Yeah, it, but I, I'm more inclined with Noah. I I think this dub is great, and I, I while I can see the points about it being rough, um, I think that that roughness isn't isn't a detriment to the show itself. I think the roughness mm. is kind of actually part of its charm, and I think that it 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 still holds up five years later. I had a great time rewatching the dub of the show, and I I stand by it. Oh, oh no! I mean, I agree with you. It just it's a little rough starting out, mostly because the show didn't know what it wanted. To <laughs> yeah, do. what's the like? I think even mm. like Tenka's Tenka's voice actor says like once you get past like episode three and the show picks up, that's like yeah, like absolutely, like, it's all you're you're like damn, this is a really good show. Uh, so yeah. let's get into our first set of characters if we're ready. Yes, please. We're just going to do basically the entirety of the Yama Inu squad, except for their leader and their butt monkey. Um, <laughs> there's no <laughs> other way to describe Takeda other than butt monkey. Um, it's true. <laughs> he is a butt monkey. So there is Zenzo. He kind of brought it on himself. He, he, he does. Uh, Zenzo Inukai, who is the big, the big, big boy. Uh, Cheren Shi, who's the little thing in the mask. Uh, Mutsuki Ashia, a.k.a. Uh, I Summon Hoes. I have all the bitches. I summon the bitches and I have a tattoo, Mal. Bitch, bitches love tattoos on my mouth. <laughs> bitches, get that bitch a tattoo. Bitches love tattoos. Um, <laughs> then there is Seichiro Atakimine, who is a big guy with a big sword. And then there's Kiko Sasaki, a.k.a. Token Girl. Um, She also had guns. And Token yeah. Tough Girl. Token Tough Girl. And boobages. She, she needs to learn to cover her shirt up a little bit. No, she doesn't. Let her be free. No. Free the tits. Let her do what she wants, bitch. Free the boobies. I, I, I let her do what she wants, certainly. I'm just saying it doesn't look like she knows how to. What, what is that? She sh- will that kick thing your you... ass. With... Let her well, do what she wants. I, guns. Good point. Good point. I, I let her do what she wants to anyone and to me. <laughs> Don't tell Jenny. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. She is pretty. Um. She's very pretty. So, playing Zenko Inukai is Cole Brown. Playing Cheran Chi is Mike McFarlane. Playing Mutsuki Asia is Clifford Chapin. Playing Seichiro Takimine is Christopher Sabat. And playing Kiko Sasaki is Colleen Clinkenbeard. Cole Brown was known as the, the narrator in Desert Punk. Uh, fuck, I do not remember how to pronounce names in Arslan. Uh, Vahiris in the Heroic Legend of Arslan. Varhis. Varhis. God, I have not fucking watched Arslan in a... In a hot minute. Uh, Varhees in, in Heroic Legend of Arslan and Blackbeard of One Piece. Mike McFarlane, you'll know his characters such as Master Roshi in the Dragon Ball franchise, Belize Arashford in Black Cat, and Bruce... J- I also put this because this was like the fucking best name ever. Bruce J. Speed in the Galaxy Railways? God damn it. <laughs> Bruce- wow, he's been around for a while. Clifford Chapin, you'll know as Bobby Hill in Attack on Titan. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> we fight for profane! Oh, there ain't something right with that boy. That boy ain't right! That boy ain't right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ashia, there better be a naked cheerleader under your bed. <laughs> There's two! There's two, thank you! 
Oh god. What were we doing? <laughs> Just he summons like two half-naked girls voiced by Alexis and Alfia, so. Uh no, but Connie's bringing her attack on Titan. Um Shigage Hamazura in a certain magical index, and Keita Suwabaki in Good Luck Girl. Uh Christopher Sabi will know as Kasumi Gyobu in Basilisk, Cross Marion in D Grey Man, and uh Kikuchio in Samurai 7, and Colleen Clickabir will know as characters such as Eclair in Kitty Grade, Sakuraka Shina in Negima, and Marie Mjolnir in Soul Eater. Of all the shows you had to pick for Chris Sabat, you had to pick three shows that almost nobody has seen. Exactly! Hey! Okay, at least five people have seen DeGray Man. <laughs> yes, all five of them listening right now. Congratulations, you're part of a very exclusive club. <laughs> oh god, Jesus Christ, I'm oh, still shit. recovering from Poppy Hill. God. <laughs> I'm, I'm still recovering from- That's my purse, I don't oh, know you! you. God damn it. Oh shit, that's not- that's, those are my familiars. I don't know you. <laughs> God damn it, Asha's the new boss. Now I'm just imagining <laughs> Sose just. Sose, give me a big wad of cash. Pocket sand. Jesus. Just fucking Sose is. Sose is Hank is hysterical to me. Does that make Tenka <laughs> Boomhauser? Oh god. <laughs> Who's the one with Okay, okay, we if we Hardy, go this, ahead. As a, as a... Hardy, just take over let, while I'm dying. Okay, let's let Hardy go. Alright, yeah, let's... shut up, Noah. Okay. <laughs> shut up, Noah. As far as Sasaki is concerned, um, it's pretty convenient that she's voiced by Colleen because she kinda looks like someone took Riza Mustang and Momo Yorozu and merged them together. That's kind of interesting you say that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean for the most part, with Colleen and with Sabbat and um, and even with Clifford, it's just it's basic fare for them. Like they've done these sort these types of roles in the past, and they'll probably do a bunch more of these roles in the future. And so it's it's they fit these characters very well. Um, Cole Brown doesn't really say too much, um, and so it's kind of hard really to judge his performance for Zinzo. Uh, because uh, when he does say he's just this big hulking brute of a man who just has voice that sounds like sandpaper and just punches ninjas and stuff like that. So it's pretty good. Um, I I've think... come here to chew bubblegum and punch ninjas. God I'm, damn all it. Out of, I'm all out of gum. I think th with Cher and she, I think this is the one people might have a problem with mm. because it is kind of a stereotypical Chinese accent. Yep. Mm. And I and I can see why it fits the character because he's just this tiny little man and and yet it you can't help but feel like maybe this would have been done a little differently if it was dubbed more recently. Like I don't want to say it makes me feel uncomfortable because it does fit the character. But I could definitely see why some people would have issues with it. I have to agree quite a bit with Hardy. Um, I don't have a lot of notes on some of these guys, which kind of sucks for me. Um, but though with Clifford Chapin, I kind of have a similar a, a similar thoughts with what Hardy said about Cole Brown. Because for the first half of the show, Cliff doesn't say a damn thing. Mm-hmm. He only really actually starts to talk more in the second half. So. Spanner in the works, baby. Bobby Hill's got to get his pay. I know. God damn it. Man. I know. But um, for for Cliff and Cole Brown, they don't have a lot to do or say. 
Um, granted, Ashia has a lot more as a character during the second half, but um, compared to some of the other members of the squad here, he Cliff doesn't have a lot to do, but he's still perfectly fine. He gets all the bitches. It's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> as for Sabbat and Colleen, the two of them are probably the bigger players of, the, of this group, really. Um, they both play those roles very well, with Sabbat being the not the normal burly tough guy. Like, he's still a tough guy, but it's not like the Armstrong levels of tough guy. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, that was always a parody of the tough guy mentality. So. I mean, yeah, but or characters similar to Ar Armstrong in that sense. This one is more... I don't want to say it's an All Might, because All Might can be very cheesy as well at times. What's the closest thing to this? <laughs> Small Might? I... Maybe. Maybe close to Small Might, actually. Yeah, you're right. Which is just All Might, um, but smaller. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's the closest thing I think of. And then Colleen, she's a badass. But she also shows... She does show, like, a vulnerable side to her. Um, especially in, in regards to Tenka and Sose. Uh, since the three of them are... Grew up together as kids, basically. Um, baby Tenka but, still had the fucking stupidest hair. <laughs> oh, Baby Tenka. Oh, we'll we'll get to Shadow the Hedgehog and his haircut later. Don't god damn it! Oh my god! <laughs> Don't you worry, it's coming. Squish somebody. Oh. Anyway, and then, uh, oh god. Oh no. <laughs> oh, I love Mike McFarlane to death. But this is a this is a performance. It's a thing that exists. And I don't know if it ever should exist. I get, I get the, I get what they're going for. They're trying to shoot for some diversity in like the vocal range and the casting, um, and give it a different dynamic, especially in the squad, squad. But um, it, it, I think it did his, hit, miss the mark a little bit on what the intention was. I understand what they were going for, but it, I don't think it landed as effectively as it really sh could have. Um, but it wasn't yeah, that, yeah. I don't have really much to say about the squad. Squad. Okay. See, uh, the part of Lilac will be replaced by a chicken for this episode. <laughs> Look at all these she will be chickens. Played by, she will be played by Alan Arkin, who voiced Hey Hey in Moana from this point going forward. <laughs> Alan Arkin? You mean Alan Tudyk? Alan Tudyk, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> I had names mixed up in my head, so you know exactly who I'm talking about. The guy who's in He went to Disney Juilliard. Now. We were talking about a samurai show, yes. or an ex-samurai show. Actually, this brings a good point about this squad, because this squad is a reflection of the time period's uh, militarization of Japan, where before it was samurai, individual samurai using their skills to defend individual houses or the country as a whole, and now we're getting into militarized pumpkin scissors, full metal alchemist style groups that are really going to shake up the country going forward. So for the, the reflection of that, the individual characters... Their designs are distinct, like, they have, like, you wouldn't mistake any of them for each other. And to match that, um, Joel and J. Michael Tan make sure that they were performed very differently. I also don't have a whole lot of notes on Cole Brown. Um, like, his design is the most distinct because, again, he's, like, this big, hulking, distinct-looking guy. But I don't have too many notes on his, um performance um but it didn't stand out to me as negatively so that is a good thing if it was something that was standoutish in a negative way then that would be a detriment against the dub as a whole so i think cole did a good job even if i can't remember anything good overall it was like it filled the role well without detracting from the design 
Um, Clifford Chapin, like you said, didn't get the bitches until the second half of the show when we get to hear him. But actually, that plays to his uh, strengths because um, he is, of the whole group, the most straight-sounding of the entire group. And I don't mean that prerogatively. I mean uh, the least... Uh, the least troubled member of the group. Like, he has the least eccentricities to his performance. And when you find out that he's really holding a whole lot of um, worry about what's coming up, what like the entire thing that's coming up with the Ordici, then you know that he it's really kind of a mask. Like, the the handkerchief he has over his mouth isn't just a isn't just a facade. He's like really masking some genuine concerns he has, but he handles it very coolly. And Clifford gives him a very cool sound to him that even in spite of danger is very in control of the situation. So I think it fits very well. Chris Abbott was the first one who I identified instantly by voice alone because he's in the very first episode. And it's like, yep, that's a Chris Abbott role. And, but it's low and rugged and probably most prominently, it doesn't he doesn't fluctuate. Like his inflections don't go up or down. He stays at a very consistent, not monotone voice, but very consistent serious man voice the kind of guy you would expect from the military and since you know he it, like even after he gets uh gets slashed up a little bit he still keeps that tough veneer to him which but I, I was heartbroken when we thought he had died i was glad when he came back for the final battle rest in peace man not rest in peace but keep fighting the good fight man um and us colleen's performance she's definitely balancing that serious yet sensitive voice that she does very well um in this case um she's got like this mid-20s female voice that's a good balance of determined for her job but yet caring for the people not just uh, the people that she and the military is supposed to help defend but also the people in her squad as well so uh, full props on colleen it sounds like between hardy and lilac's uh notes that mike is actually the most um divisive one to speak about here and he's definitely the one who stood out the most, not just because he's got, we never see his face, he's got a continuous red mask on him at all times, but also because, yeah, he's got the most cartoonish voice of the entire role. He got the I'm, easy job, he had no lip flaps. Yeah, I mean, neither did Cliff no except for in like one scene, but. Right. Right, and Mike's, uh, Mike's take on it, which is, here's the thing, I might be a little biased on this because I had just finished watching Summer Wars where Mike had played a character, uh, he played Shoda, who was a police officer who's also very goofy and over the top in that show. So in this one, it seemed like a continuation of, Mike does cartoonish voices really well. Like Even though we know him as a fantastic ADR director in a lot of shows and we don't get to see him as a voice actor too much, he does art uh, over the top sidekick voices really well to the point that I think that it, it, it didn't bother me so much. I'm thinking it didn't bother me because I never thought of it as a harmful Chinese stereotype, especially because we never see his face, so we never get to see if his design was supposed to be quote-unquote Chinese as well. And if you know the history between Japan and China as sort of um, antagonistic players in countries, then you know why that may be a harmful thing, because Japan doesn't always portray the Chinese flatteringly in their shows. Japan doesn't like, you portray need to... other races very flattering in their shows sometimes. Uh, what are you talking about? Hitalia was a great bastion of international oh, diplomacy. And... Not what no, I'm talking no. about. <laughs> we fought We fought hard to bury that show in 2009. Don't get me started on that. But, um, but I, I want to say, I think Mike did a good job in this, 
because, uh, like Lilac said, it helps break out the monotony, not the monotony, but the similar military voice styles of all the other characters. Mm -hmm. Like, and I don't know, I didn't know what he was going to do. And we don't really see what his fighting style is until near the end of it. So it was more like a big surprise. He surprised us and he's not goofy and not to be taken seriously. No, he's very to be taken seriously. So the voice that Mike gave him didn't really bother me all that much. So one of the things I want to talk about uh, really quickly with Cole Brown, because his performance, again, is... It's a, it's a good thing about Ensemble, where um, nobody in... A, uh, the best thing about an Ensemble, to me, is that everybody sounds distinct from each other, but they don't sound offensive and overbearing to the main cast. And usually when you see a character like Cole Brown's, who is as big and large as they are, they could have given him a big, doofy voice, and they didn't. Yeah. And that's always my big character, big thing when you have bigger, uh, larger, and uh, more portly characters. Mm -hmm. um, Clifford Chapin sounds uh, like a very relaxed. It's it's the other type of Clifford Chapin role I like, uh, where he sounds very <laughs> relaxed and very chill and kind of smug. It's the opposite of Bakugo. Um, right. But mm -hmm. one of the things I, I like that Noah brought up where um, he has this really great discussion with uh, Sose. Which, um, just, there's a spoiler warning on this. Uh, one of the big things that happens in this show is that Tenka is killed off halfway through the show. And it's very emotional. Oh my god. And it's- Wait, he is? Yes. Um. Shut up. God damn, why'd you spoil that? Uh, fuck both of you. Um. I, <laughs> I, I specifically had it so those two could not tell each other that happened. Um. She did. I was like, whatever you do, don't tell the other one where you're at. Um, she pulled the Surrey Tama on us. Yeah, don't tell don't tell the other one where we're at. But um, he has this really great delivery about, well, if my brother was strung up, I'd be pretty pissed about it and want to know. Or, or no, like, if my brother was strung up for no reason and sacrificed. That's it. That's right. it. Because yeah. you find out that Tenka wasn't being possessed by the snake. No, that's Sora's job. Um... <laughs> Also, B, uh, I find it really funny that when we talk about in the next segment, uh, he is a direct descendant of one of the assholes in the past that tried to kill them all. Um, but I think he was really good. I really enjoyed Clifford, uh, not Clifford, um, I really enjoyed Sabbat as Takamine because he seemed like the big gruff mentor without being, like, fucking Armstrong, and he did keep a very level head, and he had to deal with his actual pet butt monkey. Um... <laughs> You're gonna keep using that term, aren't you? Because that's the only way I can describe that character without getting into getting into his performance. Um, and then Kiko, I think Colleen does what Colleen really excels at. Um, I mentioned uh, Marie from Soul Eater because this is a very similar-ish performance with a little less moe because Mjolnir's way less, way more moe than Kiko is. Uh, and Kiko has to have some moments where she is openly upset and kind of berated for it. By Sose, who's, mm -hmm. I think, projecting mm -hmm. his own bullshit onto her. Yep. But to, to get in, Mike McFarlane's performance, while it's it's outdated, it's it's an outdated tactic, I feel, in, in dubs. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's something that we brought up on Garo Vanishing Line as an episode, where, but I feel like the one in Garo Vanishing Line was a lot more egregious. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things that I think also really yeah. kind of drove the dagger into me that made me uncomfortable is that he literally says ni hao at one point. Yep. I missed Yeah, that. he says ni hao, and it's very, it's like, please don't do that. You could, you could, there's a lot better ways to do mystic old man. I mean, you're fucking Master Roshi, for God's sakes. Um, <laughs> yep. 
it's the one performance I would say is like an actual like big like hey this is really a really dated tactic from five years ago like please take it with a grain of salt but other than that I think yeah. I think as a collective the best part about the Yamainu squad is that they all are distinct from each other without uh, overbearing the main cast um, and kind of the more pivotal players in that uh, speaking of which we're gonna go uh, back to the past with Samurai Jack um, god damn it and by Samurai Jack I mean horny on main <laughs> wait 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 when did my boyfriend get here Oh, oh my god, your boyfriend is Abe no Hiari. <laughs> just got visible hearts coming off of him at all times. God Abe no Hiari is a demon fucker, so therefore he is my kin. Um. Which <laughs> Wait, this... I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna touch say that. Anything. No, so... Andrew, we have many, many questions. <laughs> anyway, just to keep it on track. Uh, so no, we're gonna go back to the past, and this is... The, a group of characters, two of which uh, make it into the current day of the story, one of which doesn't because he's kind of the seed in which the Kumo tree grows from, if you know what I mean. Um, oh my. He is like the least sexual one of this group. <laughs> yep. So, I, I'd, I'd still do him. I mean, he did cause Tenka to exist, and Tenka is a snack. Um... <laughs> God damn it. I'm sorry! We're, we're like a whole God lot about it. everyone's sexuality in this episode. Oh, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. The second, the first time I watched the show, eh, Tenka's not that much. Second time watching it, okay, I lie. Tenka's attractive. Um, <laughs> Tenka is very heard, I'm sorry, I've never heard anyone called a snack before. <laughs> that, that's just throwing me off guard. Um, anyway, oh, well, I embarrass myself. Abe no Hiari is a member of the Abe clan who has no perchance for magic who just really loves Botan because she's the first person who ever looked at him like an actual human being and not a tool. Mm -hmm. Botan is a familiar summoned by the Abe family, who is very much not human, keeps telling Abe that Hiari this, but Hiari's not having it. He loves her. And Kagimitsu Kumo is the Kumo Shrine head, who helps to seal the Orochi the first time 600 years ago and is the progenitor of the Kumo clan. Playing no Abe no Hiyari is Micah Solasad. Playing Botan is Morgan Garrett. And playing Kagimitsu Kumo is Josh Greeley. Micah Solasad, you'll know his characters such as Yoshi. Uh, I'm gonna do Japanese names again. Yoshisune in Appleseed 13, Rayogami in Codebreaker, and Kamui and Subaru in Tsubasa Tokyo Revelations. Morgan Garrett, you'll know his characters such as Ayami Shaga in Bento, the one show that Hardy's watched and none of the rest of us have. <laughs> I, yes, I have. Oh wow, we found both the Bento fans. I, I, I love me some battling over crappy store-bought cheap food. Look here, I've also watched Bento. Not the English dub, but I have seen the show. Wow, I found all three Bento fans. <laughs> I never said I was a fan, I just watched anyway, it. Anyway, Seraphim! Megan relates, Megan relates to a show about people being so anyway. eel. I do? Yes, you do. It's good eel. Anyway, I'm going to let that go over my head because I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Seraphim and Is This a Zombie and Rico Brenska in Attack on Titan. Josh Grilly, you'll know as uh, <laughs> my other favorite name I had to write for this. Andy W. Hole. <laughs> God damn it. And Aquarian Evil. I'm sorry, that's just a name you don't pass up. Andy hey. W. Hole. And Aquarian Evil, Shido, Itsuka in Day Alive, and Nobuchika Ginoza in Psychopaths. Hardy, talk about Andy W. Hole. <laughs> yeah, with pleasure. 
No. I, I, I put that there because I know Hardy's like the one person I know who's watched Aquarian Evolve. The, the funny thing about that character in, in Aquarian Evolve is that his power is creating holes. <laughs> this hole was made for me. God damn it. This is yeah. my oh. hole. Yeah. And he gets it with he gets together with his girlfriend whose power is filling holes. So <laughs> Isn't that the guy's job usually? <laughs> you think, yeah. How many hedgehog movies did they watch? <laughs> Anyways, before Go we ahead. get off track, um, let's see here. Because Kubo only is in one episode, um you, he really has to you know, what is the word? He ha- he really has to t- try and put forth extra effort to make him stand out. Hardy. Hardy, the word is compensate. He has to compensate quite a bit. God damn it. Anyways. No, shut up. Yeah. Um, then I think that's one of Josh Greeley's strengths is that uh, when he plays a smaller role such as this, he has to really bring forth an extra effort in order to make that character stand out. And I think uh, even though he's only in one one episode, Kagemitsu really does make a big impression in the one episode that he's in. And he's one of the more entertaining characters for the episode. Um, Stop touching Botan. She doesn't like it. Right in front of my salad, too. <laughs> right in front of my salad. Oh, my yes. God. Thank you, Hardy. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Not in front of my salad. <laughs> That's the, that was the theme of Anime Boston a few weeks ago. Not in front of my salad. Not in front of my tanuki. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as far as Harari goes, he actually does get to come back later on because he doesn't do anything for the first half of the show. He's not even there. Um, cause he actually gets to come back because he's reincarnated. Mm-hmm. Um, well, only with one arm. Only with yes. one arm, right. For some lost, reason. Lost it to the Orochi. Yeah, or- Orochi um, just blew that fucker off. Yep. I'm a but, fire in uh, Malazor. Yeah. Micah's pretty laid back and chill. I know he's got the hots for Botan something fierce and it's not going to let anything get between him. Even uh, his reincarnated self is hot for Botan something fierce. Right, right. And so like he the, just has this, he has this real cool laid back persona. Just, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you know what? I don't care if she's a 600 year old familiar. I'm going to tap that. So <laughs> I don't care if she so, doesn't have emotions. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, it's it's a typical Micah Solisod laid-back role. Nothing too crazy, nothing too um, stand out about it. He's just, he's just really, really chill dude. Morgan Garrett's Botan was very rough for me. I'm going to mm. come out and say okay. that. Yeah. It's, I know that she's supposed to be this emotionless avatar. And where she's just very matter-of-fact, very, um, not cold but she just says what she's supposed to say um but i don't know the delivery just didn't really work for me i think Mm. she felt very automated almost robotic at times and i've heard morgan garrett in other roles where she was much more animated and fun to listen to and I, i just i didn't particularly care for it there were times where botan got to got to be a little more expressive and warm, uh, and and you could tell it in her voice. But in this one, mm, I it's I, I don't think it's one of her better roles. That's just me, though. That's interesting. For being the one-off character that he is, Josh does rather well. He's kind of fun and spunky. It's great. Um, as for Micah, he's casual as all fucking hell. 
and I love it. Like, again, not in front of my salad, you know what I mean? No, he is going to, he is gonna cuddle both. My favorite thing is how, like, out of place his little cuddly animation is on her. Everything's it's dark so and gloomy, and then there's just him with the little hearts coming off. It's great. No, but, um, Micah's just nonchalant. He doesn't give a shit. He's like, I love this woman. She is mine. I'm going to snuggle her all to pieces. It's kind of funny. Um, Botan is very interesting because obviously out of the three, we get the most time with Morgan as Botan. Um, I have to kind of disagree with Hardy a little bit because I actually didn't mind. I actually kind of liked her as Botan, in all honesty. Like, she... She has a she has a strong tone. I feel that carries rather well. Um, she has a sense of maturity and she has some life to her. Even though, because I did, obviously I didn't know that she was even a familiar until that reveal. I was like, oh, huh. She just sounded like a a mature, dedicated woman, a sh like strong, kind of somewhat independent person and then you learn she's a familiar she's like oh wait what <laughs> um it was it was the opposite of how how hardy feels about it honestly like it's hard to describe what it is but at the same time i don't see it being that rough the only rough part i can possibly see is within the first few episodes originally when she's introduced but that's rough probably for a lot of performances, but mostly because of the show itself again. Otherwise than that, I really like it. And I love the dynamic between... I love the dynamic that Morgan has with some of the other characters in the show um, in present day time. But the one off episode where her, Micah, and Josh got to play off of each other, that was a fun dynamic. It was so much fun with um, Morgan just being like the independent woman she is. And Micah just being like, but I love you. And Josh going like, <laughs> not in front of my salad. <laughs> like, it's a fun dynamic and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, so while I, I, can, I can see what Hardy's saying, I can see it, but I also have to kind of disagree that that's how I felt about Morgan Garrett as Botan. Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree with Lilac on this one. Sorry, Hardy, I, I love you. I love you like a brother, but I do think also that Mar Morgan Garrett's portrayal of this was in line with the particular character that she had because this is a time period where the role of women wasn't particularly like you weren't able to go very high because we're still coming out of the I think it was the Edo period that came before the Meiji Restoration mm -hmm. that had a very strict gender portrayal of it so Morgan's portrayal is like at first you think she's just a like an attractive teacher who Chitaro has the hots for like puppy love style but as we go further along, she casts magic spells, she stands her ground in battles, and she's super devoted to making, like, to make sure that not only does the Ochori not get out, but also that the entire Kumo clan is taken care of. So on that end, I think Morgan's portrayal of it is like a balance of serious and feminine that fit really well with the character. Any sense of roboticness on it is maybe just maybe just due to the fact that she's uh, so devoted to it that um, it may come off as more, I don't know, like more, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like less emotional than you would get from a more moified character is the only thing I'm thinking of. 
But other, I think Morgan did a really good job. Um, Josh's portrayal, um, it is a shame that he only stuck around for one episode, but he does, uh, give off the set, like, he does encapsulate the entire seriousness of the Kumo line really well in his first, in the one episode he's in. He's got that great sense of, I'm serious about my role as the leader of the Kumo clan, but I'm not old enough yet to convey a sense, uh, um, yeah, sense of authority that you would expect. It's, it's kind of like Baby's first military dictator, where... They're trying to be serious, but they're so young and youthful that you don't quite take them seriously yet. And I think Josh handled that, uh, captured that really well. It's a shame that we don't see more of him in the show because, well, for obvious reasons, because of the time jump. But, like, there, there's an entire backstory there. Like, I'm not surprised that the movie that's coming out kind of focuses on that time period, 300 years before the main story takes place, because that would have been interesting to see covered. And then uh, let's talk about Micah. Let us talk about Micah. It's pretty good. It, it's, pr it's pretty basic. It's kind of... Because he has to cover two halves of the character. He has to cover the serious side that understands that they're not as powerful as the other members of the clan. But also the love-struck portion of it that sees Botan right away, like at the very beginning of episode 7 and instantly wants to marry them. And then later on in the series, they've been having dreams about this character, and they're very love-struck about it. And I think Micah covers the two halves of that pretty well. There's nothing I would ask to improve about it, because those are two very difficult halves to balance on each other. So for these three characters, they were directed pretty well. The writing on it fit for their time period, and they helped to give us that... They helped to convey that the backstory that we needed in episode 7 that kind of explained more about the uh, the Orochis, like what happened the last time they were around. I'm a little concerned about why the director, like the director of the anime, thought to put that in the middle of the show, but I guess at that point I was engaged enough in the show that I got it pretty well. So I I'd say three stars up for three pretty good voice actors. Alright, cool. Um... I'll start with Josh, because Josh kind of gets to steal the show a little bit in episode 7. Kind of does. Not in bit. front of my salad! Just, Would you stop? <laughs> just, I love it. What are your intentions with her? I'm her protector! Where he's just like, ah, bitch. It, and you kind of see, I think, a little bit of each of the brothers going down in Josh. Where he is a capable fighter like Tenka... He's a little bit whiny and kind of looks like Chitaro, and he's got Sora's <laughs> Sora's kind of emotional emotional baggage. <laughs> yeah, he's de he's definitely got Sora's "I want to be tougher than I, I actually am, am" mentality. Oh, yeah. Oh God, I love you, Sora. <laughs> we'll we'll I, get to him. We'll, hold we'll on. get your skinny jeans on. He's last, and I'm gonna have a lot of words about that character, which may involve crying. Um, <laughs> but please don't cry. I make no promises. Um. <laughs> But he's just a really, this really wonderful little one-off character. And you can tell that he has total conviction in, in helping Ami, uh, in helping Hiyori and Botan when the time comes. But leading up to it, he is like, fuck this Hiyori guy. <laughs> like, especially when, uh, Hiyori, uh, calls out the Orochi's vessel at that point, And he goes, why do we, why would we believe, why would you believe him, Botan? And it's like. He's not gonna lie when it comes to me. To which, um, uh, Botan, I, I kind of am half and half. I'm half with Hardy and I'm half with Steph and uh, Noah. 
I think towards the beginning, Botan was a little rough. I think that there are times where she maybe put on the the emotion out the emotionless familiar arc a little bit too much. But overall, I think it's a really good performance. A up until I think I literally did not know who Morgan Garrett was, like as like a continuous face up until I watched Tokyo Ghoul uh, Rude, because she's my wife in that show. Uh, my wife my wife so the only thing I actually knew uh, Morgan Garrett from as of the time that the show was recorded was actually uh, Rico Bredska and I remember I just really liked her voice so I think Morgan did a good job I wouldn't say she's one of the best in this um, I don't think she's the best female voice in the show I think that goes to another actress that we're going to get to soon Mm-hmm. But man, I I love Micah as Hiari. <laughs> um, I mean, he's so he's so hard to hate. Hiari is a special boy. He's a special boy with one arm. Um, if I can actually put one of my favorite lines uh, from here, um, so you're a demon, huh? It'll take a lot more than uh, a lot more than that to get rid of me. Where he is just oh like. God. Yeah, I'm, I, I want the Botan. I want her to paddle me. <laughs> like, she's mine. Like, bitch. Even if he lost his jack arm. Hardy, 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 Hardy. What, what, what's that, what's that uh, Van Halen song with a great drum solo at the beginning? <laughs> oh, well, Hot for Teacher. Oh, God yeah. damn it. Oh, God, <laughs> God, he is, oh, God, he is just hot for teacher. Holy shit. Kira is so hot for teacher. Although, considering he only has one arm, I think a more appropriate song would be Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. Oh, you're good. probably right. <laughs> I, I, I love that. That's, I just love how his arm literally gets, like, shooped and whooped by a giant snake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fire in the laser. No, you, yeah, yes, you people step listening, on... we, we are children of 2009, and we will not apologize for it. You step on Snack! I'm a fire in the laser! Right Dr. Octagonopus! Good, you goddammit. <laughs> right Memes my... destroying the internet forever and ever. <laughs> Do you think that the Orochi Dawn just blessed? Do you think the can, can, Orochi... we get, can we get a reference to shoes in there somewhere, too? Yes! <laughs> shoes. Let me borrow that top. Let me borrow that top. Let me borrow that fucking <laughs> that top. Water. Fuck. Um, let's get some shoes. Okay, I'm gonna go. Soromaru, where are you going to get what I fucking want? Um, <laughs> but do you think that? Do you think so? Do you think the Orochi, like the Orochi, who was in the vessel of the guy that was with him, who I, I I'm sorry to blank on the actor who plays him, was just like, these two will not stop cuddling in front of me. I'm gonna fucking blow his arm off. That'll keep him. That'll keep him down. To which, uh, by the way, I love the writing on the scene where um, Botan fades in the past to him, and he's like, "Look, the lake is catching gold," and I'm just like, "Fuck, man!" <laughs> ah! Part made me cry, and then at the end, Botan, jump! I'll catch you. <laughs> oh, I forgot about where that. Where he just she just jumps into his arms as the laser's gonna disintegrate her. She's got to get that spell out. Like she's got to cast that spell. Nishki's there, like right in front of my salad. Um, <laughs> but I, I <laughs> genuinely really like. I think the thing I really liked about this is, um, Micah does a lot of these characters now more days. He kind of does actually. But I, I think this was kind of a rarity for him back in the day. Even though I put Subaru and Kamui from Subasa Tokyo Revelations, who are also very chill. 
but I, I genuinely really liked it. I don't think he's... I think he, he works really well, too, against some of the more um, energetic characters. Especially when you know that he knows that Tenka's alive and has had to put up with Tenka Kumo. He's, he puts him in... He fucking chains him up to a wall. Um, but I, I genuinely enjoyed the backstory episode, and I think Micah excelled in that. So, moving on from the good, we gotta get to the evil... Bad to the ball. Oh, no. The evil part one. Um, <laughs> part one. We're getting a part two eventually, and that's where Lilac and I are gonna have some fucking words. Oh my god. I think all of us are gonna have some fucking words. So, first up is Nauto Kagami, a weird ass serial killer who's got like scorpion blade tails. And like weird piranha teeth to go with it. He was a fisherman. Because he's not evil without pointed sharp teeth. teeth. Gotta look like a shark, man. We gotta make sure it's legit, guys. Everyone knows villains have pointy, pointy teeth. Yes. Now um. to shark. Do, 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 do. <laughs> get, get that fucking shit. Get the fucking shit off my episode. Don't you baby shark me. <laughs> and then there is Kotaro Fuma, a man with a fox oh. man, a fox mask, a creepy eye, and a lot of opium. Hmm. He's got the drugs, kids. He got the, he got the, don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs. Co- Cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> opium's a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's explicitly opium. Like, it's explicitly opium. Uh, which makes well, sense. Well, no, hold on. We, we could, like, argue that maybe it's, like, candy canes or no, it's, cinnamon it's, sugar. They were sneaking or in poppies. Pop- no, they, that's what opium is, Steffi. I know. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're pretty explicit that's about the this. That's the joke. But yeah, but Kotaro is the tenth head of the Fuma clan. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We'll get <laughs> to the snick other snicks. They serve the Spoilers. giant. They, they do not want you to step on snack. Um. <laughs> anyway. No, but they are they are essentially the yeah. the retainers to the Lord Orochu and wish to see his arrival. He Kotaro Fuma spends most of the time in prison. He is also the person who killed the Tenka uh, Tenka Sora and Chutaro's parents. But, or, or is so he? we think. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Shush! I'm leading up to that. Anyway, well, I haven't we'll seen the whole it. show yet. Don't we'll spoil it for God me. God damn it! <laughs> Don't I've watch the fucking episode. episode. Don't watch the fuck. God, fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Moving on. God, shit, fuck, damn, piss. No, 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 no. Sorry, I I've been watching a, a video that has the Game Grumps Grumpet, which is just them swearing in time to that song. Anyway, <laughs> playing Naoto Kagami is Ian Sinclair, and playing Kotaro Fuma is J. Michael Tatum. Ian Sinclair, you'll know his characters such as Tatsumi and Shiki, the world's most threatening villain ever. Um, yay! Dallas Genoward and Bakano, the least threatening villain ever. Also most villain. Villain ever. ever. Yay! And Orang in Last Exile Fam, The Silver Wing. J. Michael Tatum, you'll know his characters such as uh, Kazuomi Hirasa in Eden of the East, um, Wabisuke Jinouchi in Summer Wars, and because Noah brought it <laughs> up and I'm going to exhume its corpse for entertainment, he's France Uh-oh. in Italia. Oh, God. Hello, future French territory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will tell him again. Oh. Oh, I no, want- no, you people. No, you bastards. We are not really. I really kind show. of want to ask. I want to lick it. I kind of want hard to kill it. I kind of want to ask. Don't bring it back. I kind of want to ask Tatum. I was, about, I was about to pull a magic metal pipe of pain joke, but I'm like, Jerry's not in this show. He's a background character. <laughs> no, I was going to say, one thing I want to do one day is just ask Jay Buckle Tatum in his French, in his French, France voice to say, Oh, ho, ho, Eiffel Tower baguette. <laughs> 
Only because I, I should have mentioned Josh was Poland in Hitalia because one of my favorite Hitalia bloopers is just Josh Grayley in the tiniest little voice going, I've got a shield, motherfucker! Oh, God. Are you ready to get kicked out of whatever convention you're in at the moment? Yeah. Because that's what's going to happen. Anyway. Anyways. Go ahead. Right. Uh, let's start with Kagami. This is a crazy Ian Sinclair role. We've heard Ian, Zudu, Ian Sinclair do really, really crazy roles. And... He does a really good job here. And, uh, yeah, Naoto is a crazy son of a bitch, and Ian really <laughs> pulls that out really well. And, uh, yeah, that's really all I got to say on that. As far as Fuma, Tatum is doing his usual very threatening, foreboding uh, villain sort of voice, and, uh, and it really works here. I have really no complaints about either of these performances so what about complaints about the characters themselves uh, the characters themselves let's see here um like how many sons do you want to punt naoto into oh no i don't think i want to punt these guys into oh no i don't want to punt these two punch I, I mean I, I know one of them's gonna get thrown into a black hole later on but <laughs> these two yeah oh with uh with Kagami, I mean, he's chill with Chutaro, so I mean, he kind of gets a little yeah. bit of a pass there. But so. he wanted to kill the the innocent women who went out to pick herbs near the end. Yeah. They wouldn't share their weed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bitches, don't, bitches wouldn't share. Oh, God. Yeah. But no, that's, that's really all I have to say. I would say stuff about J. Michael Tatum, but there's a different character that once twister thing that happens he kind of overshadows him a lot yeah and that's the character i want to punt into the fucking sun it's like tatum has this slow yet controlled descent into madness if that's the best way to describe it and it works rather well because we 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 obviously have seen tatum go batshit nuts but he also has, he also can exude that control. He can, like, keep himself together. And I think with Fuma here, that's mm -hmm. exactly what the character called for. Especially when we learn, like, the process of how the Fuma become Fuma, basically. <laughs> oh, I was going to talk about that in the section with Nishiki. Mm -hmm. I know, but we kind of have to talk. God, like, it's the fucking most. Save it, we gotta save talk it. about it's a tiny bit. Fucking most edgelord thing on the planet. We can go. We can talk about it. We can talk about it more when we get to Nishigi. But like, it's interesting how that progresses, which is very edgelordy. But um, it's a very controlled descent into madness. If that makes sense. And given Tatum's vocal range and his vocal prowess, I think that works very well for Fuma. Ian as Kagami is just. A lot of fun. What did I freaking say? He is. <laughs> he. Is, this is a funny joke right now. Ian is devious and cunning, cunning like a snake. <laughs> Make your jokes. <laughs> I mean, because he's obviously the e he's like obviously evil McEvil pants, and he's like killer well, McKiller pants. But at the same time, it, at the same time, he kind of has a little bit of redemption to him. Towards mm -hmm. the end, which is really nice. Because um, Chutaro is just like, you can do it! You can have hope again! And he's just like, fuck your hope, but here you go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, like, I, especially Kagami, between, obviously between Ian and Tatum, Kagami stands out 
more because Ian had a lot more to do and a lot more to play with. But um, I really enjoyed both performances very, very much. They each brought a little something to the table, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is a show where um, there are twists. Um, it's not quite M. Night Shyamalan level where the show lives and breathes on twists because even after learning about all of the the people who double-cross, triple-cross, and quadruple-cross each other, I can still, I think I could still enjoy watching the show again just because the character interactions are so enjoyable. Um, Tatum's introduction in the prison episode is as the mask-wielding Last of the Fuma line, which, uh, if you don't know, the Fuma clan are these white-haired motherfuckers who were basically tasked with resurrecting this giant demon snake character who... We're basically, you know, going to destroy the entire world. So when you have one of them who is basically introduced early on as being the incarnate of evil and also is the one who presumably killed the Kumo's parents, um, Tatum plays him as, like, dripping with vile. He's not um, sinister in a Dr. Evil or Dr. Claw kind of way. You know, it's not cartoonishly evil. It's a very scary kind of evil. Not... Not just the fact that you don't see his face ever because he's always covered in a mask, but also because you don't quite know what to expect from him. And when we first see him, he, like you get kind of scared of him. And even further on in the show, he's a formidable foe in the whole thing. So Tatum's portrayal of him is really convincing as a bad guy with a motive, which are the worst kind. Nothing's worse than a bad guy who has no motive, but a bad guy with a motive to resurrect the Dark Lord, essentially, is really, really bad. <laughs> Who shall would, not be named. Yes, would you, exactly. <laughs> would you compare him sort of to like a Hannibal Lecter type? That's what I think having, this show is trying to go for. Yeah, having oh, like, just seen Silence of the Lambs recently, yeah, I could kind of agree because... Now I really want to watch rewatch Silence of the Lambs. It, it, yeah, because we don't quite know what it... We, we don't see the gears turning in his head quite yet, but we know instantly that you're not supposed to trust him. And when we find out... Mm -hmm. That he, uh, we'll talk about this more when we get to that character. But we find out there's a very good reason why we should fear him. Uh, Tatum's voice of it uh, fits really well with the kind of sinister, evil voice that it's not the kind of villain that you want to see around any further because you want them to win. It's the kind you want them to stick around because they're just so deliciously evil in what they want to do. But let's talk about Ian for a little bit, because Ian Sinclair's uh, portrayal of Naoto is really unconventional, is what I'm going to call it. Because um, he starts out with a, with a husky speech pattern, and the first time we see him, we don't quite know who he is. We don't know what his motivation is, because he's introducing himself to one of the characters as a regular person. But as the episode goes on... He reveals his true colors a little bit more, and then he gets wild and raspy and really, you know, wielding that blade that's going to essentially you know, uh, make you really scared. Because I don't know how the physics on that thing works, but it's like it's like fourth dimensional weapon wielding that mm -hmm. only one character can stop, which is Tenka. But for the the arc of his character, for Naoto's arc, where he goes from the bad guy to locked up to bonding with one of the younger brothers, Ian never loses that personality. He's still the same uh, tough guy who kind of had his mentality is the, um, what's it called? The, 
uh, the strong will survive. You know, the the weak die, the strong survive kind of mentality. Survival of the fittest. Exactly. He's very much survival of the fittest mentality. And it's not, it's not in a malicious kind of way. He doesn't have a higher calling. He used to be... He thinks like, he does, excuse me. Well, I mean, he thinks he does, but like, you really look at him, he doesn't have... Like, he's not trying to resurrect the snake god. He's not trying to defend the country. He's very much just looking out for himself. And he also hates the the change of the country that's going on. Yeah, he's kind of wants to kill the emperor. That's his his end goal is to to get rid. He's he's kind of a radical terrorist. Who we never meet. Like we never meet the higher members of the government. So that's kind of a moot point. But yeah, Ian's entire persona as like the jerk with the I'm not gonna say a heart of gold, but like the good natured jerk. Maybe I, that may be too generous, but. Yeah, I'd say Ian's portrayal of it is really intriguing to watch. Like, it made, uh, it could have been a despicable character with a lesser actor, but with Ian, really fun to watch. Uh, I'll start with Kotaro, uh, Kotaro Fuma first, because, um, he is a character that, it, I think Hannibal Lecter was a really, which I think the show itself and the design of the character really, I think, was going to evoke. He's chained up in this cell. He's got the kind of crazy... He's got the one crazy eye. Though I don't think Hannibal Lecter has, like, one crazy eye. Forgive me, I'm actually terrified of Silence of the Lambs. Um, I mean, understandably so, but... I'm not a horror movie person. Uh, But the whole, like, he's in jail, and he's kind of running this thing, and one of the things that really stood out to me about Tatum's performance is that there is, like, almost this sense of nobility to this villain, where uh, when... Uh, t- uh, Sora, who's in disguise, is thrown into this cell with him. He says, we're all family now. And he's, like, very, like, it's it's that sense of, like, um, this is gonna sound really weird, but how, if you've ever seen My Hero Academia, it's how uh, All For One talks to baby Shigaraki. Mm. Where he's like, don't yep. worry, yeah. I, he, and he uses All Might, I am here. Uh, because one of the big things that is a, a huge running theme of the show is family, and especially for Sora, who uh, at that point of the show is having a lot of doubts on how uh, his family really works. Because the, the Kumo family is an inherently broken family because of Kotaro Fuma. Asterisk. Asterisk <laughs> mark. <laughs> um, read the footnotes. Read the footnotes. Give us like ten, like five. Give us a little bit. We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> skip to this time code to see what we mean. Um, but J. Michael Tatum's very controlled approach, where he doesn't really raise his voice even in death, even when he grabs Tenka and and uh, Sose and throws them into a laser. <laughs> he is like. I'm doing this for the. Co- it's very much. A, it's it's almost like a cult personality. It's yeah. this guy doesn't have a, a personality anymore. It's it's a cult brainwash. There's a line where I don't think it was him who said it, but it was a line of um, betraying blood is the worst thing you could do. Mm-hmm. So he's very yep. devoted to the. Yeah, he's devoted to I the think idea it's, of. I, I don't want to say who I think says it because reasons. Um, it was either yeah, it was either. It was either Kotaro or the other guy who we'll get to in a bit. Yeah, um, but he is also, it's also very telling that um, 
He's also this also his whole like family mentality actually kind of bites him in the ass and we'll get to that. But I think Tatum does the thing that I think a lot of people really like about Tatum where he is very controlled and very suave cuz Tatum has played a lot of villains. Um I did bring up uh Wabiske Jinouchi who for me was a long time a villainous kind a villainous or antagonistic character I always associated with Tatum performances. Um it's it's like there there's a lot of over the top Tatum's like uh, France like um, Rintaro Okabe, but this is a very different breed where if you're used to Tatum playing like the glasses good guy and you watch this you're like wow this is actually very very interesting, and then there's Ian who plays uh, Kagami who um, I think we were all at the panel last year where the gentleman who plays Tenka when I asked him who is his other favorite character besides Tenka who was it he said Naoto. He did say Naoto, which Naoto is a very interesting Ian Sinclair where he is very laid back like Hiari, and but he's a little bit more over the top, but he is very gruff and I think you, it's very much a person putting up a wall where I think Chitaro starts clawing down that wall because Chitaro saves him from, from being killed by the Orochi and in return off screen, um... Naoto saves Chitaro and lends him one of his blades. And there's very much a devil-may-care attitude to Ian's performance, where it's like, um, you want to get revenge, you gotta show me. But he also is very, very much uh, high on his horse, and he talks down to Chitaro, and it's in the performance. It's a very interesting villain character, and it's a performance I don't think you see a lot in secondary characters. This is a performance performance that you would find on a more nuanced main villain. And I really appreciate that. Um, I don't want to churl ch ch chug ch chuck Nauto into the sun. Chug? Chug, chug Wait, Nauto. are we chugging him chug, like a beer? Chug. What is no, this? No, no, no. People will get ideas. Chug, 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 chug. Shut up, Noah. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Artie. Uh, but I genuinely liked both the performances uh, and I think I'm good to move on. Are we good to move on? Yes. Yes, please. please. All right, so this is going to be our last group before we get into all individuals because the last four characters of the show are incredibly in-depth and hard to talk about in a group. So this is going to be... Uh, originally, I had this section called Sora Maru's Boyfriend and Girlfriend. And she had a separate section, section well. that was called Tenka's Boyfriend and Girlfriend. So now I've, I've kind of turned this to team moral support. <laughs> Megan, queen of the slash fic writers since 2008. I am not the queen of the slash fic writers. There are many, many, many people better than me. I am just a Fujoshi. Um, <laughs> no, but they are Rakucho Takeda. Rakucho Takeda is a lieutenant in the uh, Yame Inu squad, and he is, I believe, the direct uh, student of Seijiro Takimine, who is very much trying to kind of get his, like, moment of glory and it usually doesn't end up well for him. <laughs> he is kind Nine of- Nine times out of ten. ten. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, he is the Yamainu butt monkey. <laughs> then there this is- This is a family podcast. This is a family podcast. Family picture. Um, <laughs> Nishiki is a, a unfledged member of the Fuma clan. She is a mysterious girl that uh, Sora mistakes as a dude in prison, as one does. Uh, who eventually, because she is seeking a purpose in life as a ninja, uh, yeah, there's ninjas in this, by the way, 
Uh, she eventually kind of comes into the care of Sora of Sora after Tenka's death, and kind of falls in love with her. It falls in love with Sora. Uh, she also is probably the most. Her design is very strange. <laughs> her design is out there, guys. Kind if the is. Batman villain creators were writing anime in this time period, Nishiki is. She's um, the Harley Quinn. She's got she's got like half violet, half half white, one violet eye, black hair. Because to become a member of a full fledged member of the um, Fuma, you have to kill someone you love. Then you get locked in a box until yep. all of until you come to face you darkness insane, and accept it. Basically, you slowly go insane. Yeah, basically. Uh, and then there's Abe no Sose, a direct descendant of the Abe line, where Hiyari is from, who is asked to join the Yama Inu, who, uh, after Tenka's, was basically Tenka's childhood friend, and after Tenka's departure became its leader. He is at odds with Tenka morally, but is still his kind of partner in fighting. He is described by Tenka's late father as the right hand of the Yama Inu before he becomes the leader. So, playing uh, Rakucho Takeda is Joel McDonald, our director. Playing Nishiki is Jamie Markey. And playing Abe no Sose is Eric Bale. Joel McDonald, you'll know his characters such as Juicy... J- Juicy... J- fuck. <laughs> Juicy J? Juicy... God damn it. Jazzy J. Jacuzzi... <laughs> Jacuzzi, I have a gun in my heart swat from Bakano. Azusa Hanai... Uh, Hanai in the big windup and Meow in Space Dandy. Yay! Ja- Jamie Markey, you'll know his characters such as Shoko Kirishima in Bakken Test, Haruna Satome in Nekima, and Chloe, that bitch, in Spice and Wolf. <laughs> Eric Vale, you'll know his characters such as Ryusuke in Beck, Yuki Soma in both versions of Fruits Basket, and Sinestra in Kitty Grade. That's Hardy's cue. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> go. Sorry. Uh, Hardy, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, first off, let's start with Sose. Sose is kind of a jerk, and he's just very, he likes things being done his way, and he's not going to let anyone um, ha- just deviate from his plan, and Eric Vale has a history of playing these sorts of uptight jerk characters. Um, not to say anything ne- negative about Eric Vale himself, he's a very, very good man, but um, yeah, he... he plays this role really well and it's kind of interesting because he plays two different types of jerk characters he plays the one that's like the jerk homicidal maniac and he plays the uptight you know like you know guy in charge like so say um and so yeah i think he does really well in this in this particular role um as far as joel mcdonald that poor guy can't catch a break <laughs> he just wants his moment to shine to prove his medal and the universe says nope so it's like nope not today but yeah joel really does a good job at playing just sort the sort of down on his luck yet always tries his hardest and uh he's he's headstrong and and um and proud and he's not gonna let that stupid kumo brother just outshine him every time and so i think yeah i think that it really speaks to joel's performance um, uh, the one I kind of have an issue with is Jamie Markey as Nishiki. Really? Not because, not because the performance was very was bad, because it wasn't. It's just this is not the type of character you usually see Jamie Markey play, oh, and so okay. it, it was a it was a little bit jarring hearing her voice coming out of that 
interesting character design. Um, like, even when she was in the prison, we didn't see her full design yet? Well, yeah, it's just... It, it almost it, it makes she makes her sound almost a bit older than she looks because you would assume Nishiki's probably four, like 15 or 16 years old um, and I and I don't I think it took a little bit out of the performance for me not that it was bad but that it's just it's jarring and and, and at times she did sound a bit a bit wooden and and uh, emotionless but then again that is a lot that's a, that's part of the character because she's gone through so much crap and and basically been treated like filth her entire life mm. so yeah now it's it's probably my weakest of the three but it's not bad um but. where i even want to start uh i'll start with eric as well because um with so say he while he doesn't agree with Tenka morally, like Hardy was saying, um, he he's kind of also thrust upon this leadership position um, after the events involving Tenka happen, which we won't quite spoil at this point. Um, but, which I think Eric ha shows that leadership and that maturity to him. Um, he also acts as a really good foil to Tenka, speaking of him not agreeing with Tenka's morals. Um, he's a very good foil in the back and forth that you see between the two characters, whether they are on screen or whether they are off screen and talking about the other person. It's actually a very interesting dynamic, and I enjoy that a lot uh, in Eric's performance. Um, as for Jamie, I'll go with Jamie. Uh, Jamie... I kind of have to slightly disagree with Hardy. I will only agree with the fact that at the time, it's probably very different than what you normally hear her as. But I think there have been a few other cases where she's played a similar kind of character before it, since then. Um, but I do somewhat agree that probably at that time, it was very different for her. Um, but in terms of Nishiki, uh, she's this lost human being that desires hope and a purpose which that's her character in a nutshell like the second she's tossed aside by the fuma she's like what am i gonna do with my life i need orders i need a purpose in my life and here comes soromaru like you can just do whatever the hell you want like you could stay with us sure but you're free to do whatever you want like he, she gets a reason from him it's a class it's the, the classic stereotypical like I lost my purpose in life. I need a purpose in life. While that is a rather tropey and cliche storyline, I think Jamie captures that rather well, given the edgelordiness of how you become a goddamn Fuma in the first place. <laughs> Hang her upside down and suck the hair out of her. Pretty much. And then, God bless Joel McDonald. God bless him for being the god freaking butt monkey of the show. Poor Takata. Poor Takeda, because he is such an adorable little goober who just wants to, like, he, he, he just wants to have his day in the sun. He just wants to be appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he wants. Acknowledge me, Dad. Acknowledge he wants, me, Dad. He, he wants has, Papa Sose to notice him. Yes. Papa Sosa, please notice me. He has a lot of spunk and energy to him, and Papa clearly, Sosa's. clearly, he is the young new recruit 
from for the squad too. And you can clearly tell he's just so green. He's very green. <laughs> including what, his hair. Lilac, <laughs> Lilac, what, you've seen um the, the woman called Vigigamine, right? Of course I have. Would you compare his character to um um Oscar from that show? God no, Oscar lost his goddamn mind. <laughs> we all know okay, that, okay, right? May, may, maybe Oscar from earlier in the show. Earlier in the show, yes, but Oscar lost his fucking mind later on. Anyway, um, but yeah, Joel, I think we've said this before as a typecasting, he's always so much fun as the butt monkey. I think we've said it before, and it's present here too, and he's just so much fun. Um, but yeah, all, th all three of these characters are fun. I, I actually, if I had to pick a standout, I actually have to, ooh, it's hard. I actually have to pick Jamie as my standout of the trio here. Really? Yep. Alright. Um, I'll start with Joel, um, because, um, I'm just gonna say this right now. If you're an anime character, and you've got freckles as your character design, do not try to be a serious leader, because there's no hope for you. There's no way you're gonna be a leader. Um, yeah, um, Joel's, uh, portrayal of Takeda is, um, definitely, he captures the younger voice, because, um, the character is obviously, uh, like Lilac said, greener, mm -hmm. and I don't mean this reference to his hair, but I mean his actual... I mean, it's funny, because it's true, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So, um, but he's got this sense of inexperience to him, which is, unfortunately, like, anyone who's worked a job where they've wanted to, uh, excel through the ranks, but they don't have the experience to it... They're always trying to compensate. They're trying to compensate for a lack of experience by trying to be super tough or be super serious. And Joel really does portray that sense of trying to um, overcompensate for his lack of experience by being super serious. And it just does not work for him in the show itself. But that's good because the way that he's directed, it's exactly what the character needs. Um, Eric's portrayal as um, Ayabe is really... Um, he conveys a sense of older experience because he's got this grumble in the back of his throat. Now, most of the male characters in the show, except for the ones who we said have distinctly lower voices, have mid-range 20-year-old kind of voices. So Eric has to give him a little more grumble to give the sense that he's in charge. And don't let the ponytail fool you. Just because you got a blonde ponytail doesn't mean that you can't be in charge. Eric is very much in charge of this whole thing. Are he's you not discriminating quite... against blonde ponytails, Noah? I'm just saying that, okay, um, like, have you ever seen a military person who has long hair? No, because they give you a buzz cut. Exactly. So, like, bring it back to King of the Hill. Once you, <laughs> once you become a grunt, you've got to shave your hair off. Jesus. So, see, Seeing so seeing so say with long hair kind of gave the sense that this show was definitely geared towards the shonen crowd who's used to characters with long hair, but that that's beside the point. Eric's portrayal of the character is definitely he's got clear enunciation. He doesn't have the mannerisms of the backwoods Japan bumpkin kind of voice that some of the other farmers and other people have so he definitely conveys a sense of control over the entire um what's called yamanairu crowd uh, the, the group that's thank you the the group who's supposed to be keeping the orochi from resurrecting basically mm -hmm. so on that sense like I don't know if um, he was um, trying to sound extra tough, but it definitely uh, gave a sense of control over the entire group. So 
I think that uh, worked out pretty well for him. I'm trying to think of like, like, did he have a moment of vulnerability at all in the show that really uh, conveyed a sense of sensitivity? He kind of gets one at the very, very end of the show. Um, well, okay, yeah, but yeah, but everyone kind of gets once the yeah once the final episode comes out. I think but. he kind of gets like he kind of gets like a couple. I think I think it's just not verbally done. It's shown a lot in his actions. Well, yeah, because. Um, but uh, because, verbally, he doesn't really get one that I remember. Right, because you can't have a character that's this serious without having some sense of heart of gold aspect to them. Um, and Eric Vale's, yeah, he definitely conveys the softness to a character that is really, really in charge, but cares about his entire group. And then let's talk about Nishiki. I'm not going to talk about Nishiki's design, because that is a cosplay's wet dream right there. But let's talk about Jamie's portrayal of her. Um, she's definitely shrouded in a sense of dedicated mystery, is the best way I could describe it. Because she maintains a consistent tone where her inflection doesn't fluctuate, uh, with, um, being, f um, unsure about what she wants to do. She maintains very seriousness. Because she's part of a group that trained her from a very early age to be really devoted to the Fuma clan. So she doesn't have fun Moe personality traits. And Megan, uh, Megan, did you watch us all in the sub at all? No, I have not. Right, and I I've watched. Okay, no, I've watched some clips of the sub, but it was not for Nishiki. See, yeah, I don't know if Nishiki was given a more moe voice uh, in her Japanese portrayal, but Jamie does capture that sense of um, that sense of seriousness. That like it's almost a mask that she's supposed to maintain because when she was up, she was upbringing in this very serious. Like, <laughs> I almost want to reference the um, the girls from uh, the final season of Samurai Jack who are trained to kill the samurai, where there's no fun at all. There's no fun allowed. But, um, yeah, uh, Jamie's portrayal of it, I don't have a qualm with it. I really don't have a qualm with her portrayal of it at all because she doesn't know where she wants to go. She kind of, like, explains who she, what side she's on near the end of the show. And it fits with the way that Jamie portrayed her. So I really did get a sense of like a girl becoming who she was going to be. A character arc of, I don't know who I want to be. And then I realized I want to be part of the Kumo group. Or I want to be part of the group opposing the Fumo clan when she steals the swords. And Jamie's voice definitely matched that. It's not cutesy. It's not moe. It's very serious. And it's very dependable is the best way I can describe it. Joel as Takeda is a lot of what I remember Joel McDonald characters being. <laughs> Joel, poor Joel McDonald plays a lot of butt monkeys. Um, <laughs> he does. Have you have you seen Sekirei? I own that. I think I still own the first season of that, and I've just never yeah, watched whoops. it. Like there obviously are shows where Joel isn't a butt monkey. Um, I think there's like I'm trying to remember like, as eh, Zeref's not really a butt monkey. Zeref's a Zeref's a character. No, Zeref is not a butt monkey. He just has really rotten luck. <laughs> okay, Zeref is God's butt monkey. Oh God! <laughs> Zeref Zeref Dragneel is God's butt monkey. Um, he he, and I am not I am not wrong. Um, nope, not really. But Takeda Takeda is such a fun character in this because he is very much like competing with Sora in like the sense of like a shonen pro tag, and I genuinely like that the two of them sound very similar in age range. Um, and it just, I didn't, Joel just brings so much energy to the character as well, because, uh, Takeda also has kind of this moment later on in the show where, um, his mentor gets brutally wounded mm -hmm. and he lays into Sora 
and it is a very believable scare oh, teenager. Yeah. Where he's like, how yeah. could you let this happen in your own backyard? Aren't you the one in charge here? And he... He also is the one who kind of gets uh, smacked around by Tenka in the very beginning, too. Um, but, and, but it does really... Send, it conveys that sense of, like, comp, um, compensation that he's trying to Yeah, he is yeah. he is overcompensating for, for his status. But by the end, he... Um, he helps to deliver the final blow in the orgy. Yep. So he so got to be the badass. He, he, he got to, to be. be a badass, and he gets rewarded. Um, but I think that's one of my other favorite things in the show is where his mentor brings him wine. He goes, "I'm not old enough to drink," <laughs> and he just kind of has like that very like "Oh God" kind of moment. Um, Jamie Markey's Nishki. Um, oh, Nishki also has another great moment, and that is when Sose shows up to the house for breakfast. And she just has the knife, and, and Sora's like, put that down. <laughs> you um, put that away. I said, no, put that away, he's welcome. Um, I really, I actually really like this, because I like when Jamie Markey gets to play these characters. Because Jamie Markey gets to play a lot of, a lot of panties, a lot of sexy, a lot of, um... <laughs> crude humor. Crude, crude, lewd, saying fuck. She gets to write as that a lot, too. She got to write as that a lot. Right. Um, but I, th I think the reason I really like it is that she is so broken. And I think she, that moment where she's like, please give me a purpose. And the f one of the other twists I like in this is that Botan has the absolute faith in her to choose the right thing. And Botan's like, I don't even know what the fuck I'm here. Um, Sora's the orgy. Go get the swords. I, tr I, I shouldn't trust you, but here we are. Um, and I think she really sells that. When she's like, no, I I, I love Sora. Like, she's she's got the lovesick kind of puppy in her voice, but still retains her strength and dignity. And I, I genuinely really liked it. I, I It's hard to put into words. But let's talk about Eric Vale as Tenka's <laughs> ex-boyfriend. Um, You're not going to let that go, are you? Nope! <laughs> Tenka and Sose is a ship for me. Sorry to the actors who play them. Um, no, I, I really like this because, yeah, Eric Vale plays a lot of these types of characters, but Eric Vale also plays a lot of villains. And this is a voice that you, I think, a performance you would normally associate Eric Vale as a controlling villain with this performance. Right. But he's no, not. Yeah. But he's not. Sose is one of the ultimate good guys in this, and I think the other thing that Sose really has to that he has that he brings to Sose's performance is that very large chip on Sose's shoulders, because Tenka is such a martyr, and he is effectively watching his childhood friend drive himself into the dirt for the sake of sake of things. It's like you had two brothers; you could take care of this. They could have taken care of the shrine. And why did you leave me? Why don't you mm. tell me these things? Yep. It is very much like he feels like an abandoned brother. Yeah. They were raised together. Um, I'd also like to shout out to Caitlin Glass is playing Baby Sose. Yes. And she does a fantastic job. And I think that her and Eric Vale as a voice match were really good transitioning into each other. Um, I think everyone's kind of said what I really feel about Sose. Um, I genuinely just really love this performance. And now we're going for love to absolute fucking hatred. Oh, oh boy. my god. Uh, here we go. <laughs> it is at this point of the episode, if you are somehow two hours into this episode, 
and have never watched Laughing Under the Clouds, this is where the spoiler alert's going into full effect. I wanna At punt this motherfucker <laughs> into the sun! I, I also wanna to punt this motherfucker into the sun! Ah! He did nothing wrong! Shut your mouth! Shut your mouth! It was a triple agent all along! Shut up! I- I wish. The fanfiction ass in me wish. Shirashu Shiraisu Kijo, or as he's really known, Kotaru Fuma, cause twin and bitches, because the long game, fucking Thanos here. <laughs> Shirasu Kinjo is a member of the Fuma clan who apparently was good after the clan got annihilated. This was a long game because he wanted to summon the Orochi. <laughs> Hardy, are you laughing at us? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> Just chuckling. Just <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, Shirasu. Fuck you. Ah! Plays I gotta say, the comparison to Thanos was not something I expected. I didn't either. <laughs> He's like Loki. He's like fucking Loki. Okay. Just God, fuck you, Shirasu. He essentially plays the long game and at one point says, You are the best pawns I could have ever asked for. To an emotionally damaged Soru and Sora. And I'm like, Motherfucker. Oh, I wanted to punch him into the sun. God damn it. <laughs> so who who plays this abhorrent character? Shirasu Kinjo! is played by Robert McCollum. Robert McCollum plays characters such as Keigo Kurusu in The Future Diary, Tessai in Samurai 7, and Rainer fucking Braun in Attack on Titan! There it is! There it is! So the bet betrayal Hardy. runs in his, uh, in his veins, apparently. Apparently, yes. Hardy. Yep. Oh if boy, where may. do I begin? Let's see here. Fuck you, Shirasu! This Not is your turn. One of the greatest forms of villain, probably the greatest form of villain, is not the homicidal maniac, it's not the, you know, power-hungry, megalomaniacal dictators, no. It's the betrayer. And that is why, interesting fact, um... If, you've, if, if anyone has ever read Dante's Inferno... I uh, knew you were going to go there. Oh, my God. The three people... The, the lowest section of hell is reserved... In the mouths of Satan. It's, yeah. They, it's, the lowest section of hell is reserved strictly for traitors. There is Judas Iscariot, Brutus, and one other. Um, and, yeah, it, there's just something so evil about having someone you trust like a family or a friend and then just turning their back on you at the worst possible moment more so than any other type of of evil that is probably the most because this is some this is it's the it's a betrayer of their masters is the one who gets the lowest point in hell right exactly yeah and so throughout the almost the entire show we've seen this character as loyal as trustworthy as as their friend almost like a, their member of their family 
And then all of a sudden, nope, I'm the bad guy. And the way Robert plays it is up until that point, he plays this this character who you would you would let into your homes personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's got this tone, this warm tone in his voice. He could be stern when he needs to, such as when um, well when Tenka's being an idiot and he's like, "Oh, come on, you have to clean yourself up, please," or when someone tries to, or when Nishki tries to um, to approach him, he's like, "You know, get away from us. You're not part of us." And that was. That actually, now looking back on it, that could have been, that was almost like a warning right there when he's warm to everyone else, but just so cold to her. Like, what is, what's going on there? Like, there are, there was, are obvious warning signs, but you're so, yeah, I'll, I'll say it with my thing. Yeah. And it's just, and, and as soon as the reveal happens, it's just, you could tell in his voice, he's like, you know, this was, you know. All according to Keikaku, and and For it's lack like of better words. yeah, he and his voice just changes from warm and jovial to just outright just robotic, and, and it's sort of like you mentioned about his brother, where it's this this controlled madness behind it. Like he ter- becomes the cult of personality. Um, the, like, there is no, there's nothing more. The person you knew never existed. All that is important is the Orochi. And it's just, it's, it's really, really impressive on Rob's part how he's able to play that flip side, both sides of the same coin uh, for this character. But yeah. Et tu, Shirasu. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Fuck you. By Real. the way, before she talks, okay. before Steph talks, I would yeah. like to point out that I got a text message from her. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, please. Okay. So where where was I? Um. So yeah. So she's like, "What episode are you on nine? I think. Wait, hold on, Robert. What the fuck? And then she proceeds to call me, and my answer when I answer the phone is like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> but like, so- what what did you have? Like, what was your stereotypical Robert voice in your head? I, I can't. Think I, of it was less the Robert and more what the character was doing. Yes, because <laughs> I liked this character. Because here's the thing, like, here's the thing, like, it's not like he just suddenly like just rips off a mask and goes all according to Kekaku. No, he reveals this by stabbing Botan in the heart. Yes. You thought it was Dio, but it was I. Kanju. God damn it! She likes you. <laughs> oh lord. So on that note, here's the sequence of my notes. Okay. Robert has a calming and mature presence as Shiraisu has a great balance with the energetic Tenka. And then later on, God damn it, Robert McCall! <laughs> and all caps. <laughs> so, kind of to go into it, he does have this calming and mature presence as Shiraisu. And it's kind of like instinctually. Not maternal, but kind of guiding as a friend and a comrade, as well as a adult figure for Soromaru and uh, Chitaro um, after everything that happens with Tenka. And then it's like, because I enjoy it so much, and it's like, I like you, you're calming, I can relate to you. 
Like, you're just oh. trying to, like, start anew, and you have been for years, and then you motherfucking piece of oh. shit. <laughs> like, you why is this it. a thing? And I got so mad. Like, okay. Like, looking back on it, you can see, like, the twin, like, the foreshadowing and the twinges of it being a thing. When you watch it for the first time, you don't know what to expect with it, and then it's kind of just like, what the actual living hell? It's like, I don't understand why this is a thing right now, but, um, that's probably what's good about not only how this character's written, but how the performance laid out was laid out as well. Because Robert does have to play that fine line, and he has to play that facade, but then when he flips, and he's like, yep, I'm done. I'm gonna go summon a fucking snake now. Like, it works really well, and I enjoy the performance. It's one of my favorites, but goddamn, I want to punt this character into the sun so fucking badly. <laughs> I I'm excited about this, because um, many years ago, I got a lot of flack for uh, not being very supportive of Robert McCall's performance as Honda in uh, Barakamon. And I'm very excited, because now I finally get to redeem myself by saying I like a Robert McCollum performance. Good. Which is, yeah, I know, right? So this is the kind of voice that, from the early offsets, like Lilac said that you can tell from the early sets on, in hindsight, that you knew that he was going to be a villain. I don't think that's true. Um, I'm watching this from, he's got a low rumble to his voice early on, but he's also got a more effeminate affection to the way that he speaks. Because he's kind of filling the maternal role in their household because he does some of the household chores. So that kind of uh, offsets you to the idea that he would ever be a villain. And we know that from his description that the Fuma clan was the ones who are essentially the bad guys in the universe, trying to resurrect the Ordechi. And so you think like, well, no, he can't possibly be part of that. But when he flips, though, and this is the key point, this is the key strength of a villain, is that he does not change. He doesn't go from um, mild-mannered... Um, Shirasu, he stays the same character, even though he's uh, entirely changed what kind of personality he is, like, or he's changed his motivation. So when he stabs Bonto in episode Botan. eight, Botan, I'm I'm looking at my notes here. I'm like, I, I miswrote it. I'm sorry, Botan in episode eight. It does not change the kind of personality that he is because he was always this caring personality and he's still caring it's just that what he cares about changes from taking care of the kumo line to resurrecting the orochi so robert mccollum is notorious for being really good as villainous characters and in this one he is really good at this villain as well i don't have a qualm with the way that he portrayed this character or the way that he tricked us because if it was any other actor it would probably be too much of a change. Like, it would be too dynamic of a change to be convincing. But, no, he's pretty convincing as um, as a change from I want to defend the Kumo line to I want to resurrect the giant demon snake. Let's not step on him. <laughs> so, I really don't God have a qualm with it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't have a qualm with him as that. I'm trying to think of it as, like, a thing that I would, like, say. No, step like, on snakes. jokes are getting hysterical in this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But then again, but then we get that last scene. We get that last scene in the last episode where they ask him, like, did you really care about us or was it all an end to resurrect the demon snake in the first place? And he says, well, do you want, I see, you want closure. And the thing is, like, we, we flash back to his good times with the family 
and it seems to be in a I care about the family kind of mentality and then he jumps off the cliff and we never quite find out so there's the sense that he started out actually caring about the family and then he like gradually became a part of the family he really did care about the family so those facets of it Robert McCollum plays off well because his natural acting voice really portrays a sense of I started out as a villain but then I really do care about you so yeah, for all the other actors that Funimation could have pulled in for this character, I think Robert was probably the best, the best top-tier voice they could have got for it. And then, again, I'm so glad that I can finally redeem myself for the Barakamon episode. Robert McCollum, you're an excellent villain character. I hope you do more of that in the future. So, Robert McCollum, Mr. Asu, is one of my favorite performances of him. Um, and Robert's done a lot of things I like. Like, I like him as Rainer in Attack on Titan. I really like him as Gridman in, in, in Gridman. I like him as, um... I like him as Honda from what I saw of Rakamon. Uh, I, I fucking love him as Stain in, in My Hero. Like, oh, definitely. Like, holy shit. Um, and I think this is up there as my other favorite villain performance for him. Like, I actually like it a little bit more than Stain, and Stain scared the living shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because of what Hardy said. This is such a, a, a despicable type of character. And it's made even worse by the fact that, like, this show genuinely hides it very well. Yes. Like, say what you will about the show not knowing what it wants to do in its first three episodes. Like, it legitimately gets its emotional twist off without a hitch. And this is one of them. I... You get you get vehemently angry, and it's because of how much Robert McCollum's performance lulled you into it. It is the right match for this character. I feel like if this character goes too over the top or too warm, it's like it's like the the, the bears. This one's too hot. This one's too cold. This one's just right. Mm, yep. And if you if you have him uh, as a character go a little too friendly a little too cold in certain places, you're going to ruin the payoff that is this character's twist. And for me, one of the other really big moments I don't think we've talked about uh, with Robert McCollum as this is um, when he tells Sora to get in the house. Yes. Is genuinely very much like, hey, you need to get the fuck inside. And if that, that moment especially... Because you have to remember, in the back of his mind, everything is going according to plan. Tenka is out of his way. Yeah. Tenka is now out of his way. He is probably elated on the inside. I have gotten rid of the biggest thing in my way. Mm-hmm. And he's got to play, Robert has to play Shirasu as being, oh my god, our family is going to be broken up again. We are going to lose this. And the other kind of moment that really gets me in, and I'll talk about this with Sora's actor in particular, is the moment where he's uh, at the Yama Inu uh, kind of base, and Sora is like crying and trying to claw his way out of his arms to the door to escape, and he's still kind of got this very parental, like, they're there, it's all going to be okay voice. And it's going to sound really weird, 
but it reminds me a lot of Mom from Promise Neverland. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> um, oh, no. <laughs> the reference is lost on Hardy, but if you've watched, I think, like, episode eight or nine of Promise Neverland. Oh, yeah. Uh, where a certain uh, someone gets their leg broken. And that whole scene after, that is what that reminded me of just now. <laughs> so, Robert McCall. Robert McCollum is... That's the other thing, too. I don't think that we get to compliment a lot of actors who play villains, especially betrayer villains. Is that when betrayal villains, like... It's like the difference between this and, like... I hate to bring up Western animation, but, like, how much I don't like the reveal in Frozen of Hans being the villain the whole time. Oh, my God. Gigi can fight me on that. Like, no, this, this is, is how you fair. this is how you yeah. do it right, and this is how you do it with voice acting right. This is a hard thing to pull off, and I think Robert did it well. <laughs> I just want to see him, like, go out to Chitaro now and say, if only there was somebody who loved you. First of all, one, it, would be, it. It, w- it wouldn't be to Chitaro, it would be to Sora. Um, uh, yeah. Chitaro. But speaking of Chitaro, let's talk about Chitaro. Okay. Uh, segue. Uh, let's talk about who I believe is Hardy's favorite character. <laughs> How did you guess? <laughs> I very I very He's distinctly remember you telling me telling me one time at night that you really liked Chitaro for a very personal reason. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I get to go into that reason, but I'll come back to me. Uh, so Chitaro is the third son of the Kuma Shrine, who is an adorable, precocious little youngster who was he was a baby. He was a baby when his parents got murdered. So much so the fact that um, when it gets brought up to him that his parents his parents didn't die because they were sick, it fucks with him pretty hard. He is a sweet boy, but he is also young and impressionable, mm-hmm. which is why when uh, Tenka runs away, he takes it, I think, the har- he takes it the hardest. And it leads him to uh, doing some bad stuff. Yep. And yeah, and I, I kind of want to get into this with more of the performance because Chutaro has a really, really poignant line in the last episode of the show. Chutaro Kumo is played by Terry Doty. Terry Doty, you'll know as characters such as Kamika Todoroki in Corpse Princess, Virgo in Fairy Tale, and Alice Kiriki in Okami San and her Seven Companions. All of those were female roles, but we also all know Terry Doty for playing a lot of little boys. Yeah, one that we uh, we do remember is <sighs> Jalal Fernandez. God damn oh it. God, fuck you! That betrayer character's done bad. Jalal Fernandez. Jalal Fernandez is a bad character, but at least he's not messed. Yeah. Oh. Oh God! Don't don't talk about mess. Yeah. Don't talk about Andrew mess. Andrew will go. Andrew will go on a diet tribe. Yeah. yeah, he really messed things up. Uh, <laughs> funny, funny for the next person we're talking about. God damn it! <laughs> Hardy, go ahead. Yeah. Um, as you may not know, um, I am actually the youngest of three brothers. So. Th- being the youngest, Chutaro really, really is a personal favorite of mine because he reminds me, in fact, their whole Kumo dynamic reminds me of me growing up with my family. Um, my oldest brother was sort of, you know, the the really level-headed one who took, t- took care of the younger ones. Uh, my middle brother, very hot-headed, you know, wants to yeah, make his own way sort of thing. And then you have me, I'm just sort of 
laid back and chill and, and just and basically a giant doof. Um, and yeah, that's why I could really relate to Chutaro. Um, I haven't gone through nearly hor- as horrible things as he has, uh, thank God. Uh, but but yeah, when he goes through and when seeing him after the loss of Tenka, I could really I could really relate because if one of my brothers was taken away from me, I'd lose it. You know, I was I very close to all to both of them, and yeah, I just being I hate this expression being the baby of the family. Um, I was I, I really do relate to him, and I really, really, really enjoy Terry's performance uh, because I've said on occasion that I I do prefer when she voices little boy characters slightly to where she she voices females. But this was before MMO Junkie came out, um, and I think that she really captures the essence of what it is like to be. I think he's is he twelve. Or is he a yeah, little bit younger? Yeah, I think than... he's like I think he, he has to be like eleven or twelve years old. Right, and she really captures that sort of energy about how how spunky he is, and he's he's all very polite. Uh, always refers to his older brothers as sir, um, okay. and um, he's just he's just so adorable. And watching him go through such a tra- uh, traumatic experience was almost heartbreaking. And I think Terry was able to bring out that part of the performance and I think she really really did a great job yeah honestly I really enjoyed the performance a lot from Terry um cause the best way to describe Chutaro um and I think Megan actually said the word that kind of comes to mind with this is, is impressionable he is an impressionable little boy um and he does go through a lot of traumatic moments Especially in the second half of the show, after Tenga just is up and gone, because it's because while what happens to Tenka is very traumatic, how Chutaro treats the situation and is also treated by Soromaru is very reflective on how Tenka treated Soromaru. Because Tenka would not tell Soromaru what's going on. And Soromaru had to find out about their parents' death, about the Orochi and all this fun stuff, on his own. And Chotaro still didn't know what was going on. He had no clue that his parents were actually murdered. He was still under the assumption that his parents died of an illness. And when he goes to Soromaru and asks, like, wait, what are you talking about? Can you please tell me? And Soromaru just won't tell him. It's the basically the exact same cycle that Tenka did to Soromaru. So it's actually really interesting how that kind of... It, it actually plays very well into Soromaru's character too, of how he doesn't want to be treated like this little kid, and yet he did the exact same thing that Chitaro as Tenka did to him. That kind of plays more to Soromaru's character, but um, Terry is just so silly and childish and is just such an innocent little little cinnamon roll too good and pure for this world but again he's such an impressionable child that he doesn't he he won't take things face value it does hit him rather hard and his coping mechanism with everything that happened with tenka just 
is I want my revenge on everyone. You know what I mean? So Chitaro's character arc is actually really intriguing, and it kind of does play into Soromaru a little bit too when you really think about it. Um, but seeing Terry, because this is one of the, probably the first times that Terry really, really, really got to have a huge role like this. Like, she would have some pretty decent sized roles before, but this is the first time she really stood out in a positive way. And, like, you can just tell she just loved, uh, you could just tell this, this was a fun one for her. So, um, Jutaro's definitely a fun performance, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the part about Jutaro is that um, he's really supposed to be the, the emotional innocence of the entire trio of the characters. But the part that w was going to make or break the performance for Terry was going to be when he's interacting with, um, which character is it? With, uh, Kato no, no, it's Naoto, I'm sorry. Naoto. No, no, Naoto, I'm sorry, yeah, Naoto. Because, um, at that point, he's still in denial about the fact that Tenka has been killed. Right. Because he's allegedly the, uh, the vessel of the Orochi. And in that scene, you know, it's a mix of delusional and coping mechanism that a lesser actor would have flubbed in, you know, just portraying the the dual personality of that. But Terry really gets it. Like, uh, she really gets the, um, no, no, it's, uh, no, Tenka's just in hiding. Like, he's, it's not actually been killed. He's just coming back later in the show. And that can't possibly be it because he can't actually be dead. Terry, like, absolutely nails that portrayal. And yes, we know what actually happens with Tenka later in the show, but, like, that was the part where I, like, fully locked into Terry's understanding of the character. And there's also the parts where Chitaro is interacting with the, um, I think it's Poco, is it? The uh, Tanuki, who... Yes. Yeah, is really, um, it's supposed to be, like, the mascot animal character of the show, but it, like, really portrays Chitaro's innocence as a childlike character, and also has, like, this really, uh, amazing skill where they can run faster than the other characters. Yes. So, yeah, Ninja Terry... Here we stand. Terry's, uh, portrayal of it is really a good balance, I think, of when you have female voice actors who portray male characters, because there are times, and I've said this before in other, in episodes, like the My Hero Academia episode, where sometimes a female voice actor is not convincing as a young male actor, like it's still too obviously a male, it's, I'm sorry, it's too obviously a female actor. Terry uh, portrays the young male portions of it really well, and I like the fact that Chitaro's uh, arc is not corrupted by all the stuff that's going on. Like, uh, he's not corrupted by how dire the situation gets. So Terry still brings that sense of fun and innocence to it that we really needed because the other two characters don't quite bring that to it. So, I'm again, I'm trying to think of like a fault that Terry has with this, but I, I can't think of one. I really can't think of one. There's, there's uh, you know, the only thing that is distinct, I think, like of worth noting is that Terry gives a slight vernacular voice to it. Like we said before, some of the actors have slight backwoods speaking patterns to it because they're supposed to portray a sense of a farming village. And Terry's the one of the three brothers who has the most vernacular speaking voice. So, but I think that's because, like, he's still growing up. Like, he hasn't quite learned to speak proper, like a, uh, like a Shinto monk is supposed to quite yet. So, for all that, Terry, great job on the performances there. Lots of enthusiasm, not quite as spastic as some people may think it to be. Really good on portraying the young heart of the trio. 
There's a line that Chitaro gets to deliver to, um... Oh, sorry, to Naoto later on, very at the very last episode of the show. And that is, I don't care if it'll take me a hundred years, I'm gonna, I'm never gonna stop trying to make up for what I've done. Because Naoto accuses him of being a killer. Mm. And I thought, like, yeah, no, like, fuck yeah, I love Chitaro. Uh, Terry has this way of bringing Chutaro's innocence and humor, like, Chutaro, what are you doing? Tenka told us to stay low! He told us to give a low profile. profile! And he's, like, in the floor of the house. But, and Terry, Terry does cute and adorable with, with Chutaro. Mm -hmm. And then Tenka gets sent to the hang. Mm. <laughs> and He loses the gang of hangmen. And it, he... And in credit to both him and Sora's actor, and we're gonna get Sora's actor after this next character. But just him yelling and Terry's yelling and screaming as Tutaro, mm -hmm. where Tenka is walking off to the noose, and you're just like, oh god, oh fuck, oh shit. And Terry is 100% selling it in combination with Sora's actor. And then you get in—you don't get in the next episode, but you get in the episode after. Where Sora's gonna go out, and Chutaro is just sitting on the steps. And it's just like, you need to come inside. I can't come inside. Tenny's gonna be home at any minute, and I gotta be here to wait for him. And you're just like, my heart. My heart, my boy. And Terry puts her hooks in. Terry, Terry grabs the dagger, looks at your heart, pushes it in, and just keeps slowly turning it. Mm hmm Because she... She makes Chutaro believable. Yep. This, in a show where there's a giant tanuki and a laser snake, she is a believable, tr a believable little boy going through, honestly, the first loss in their life. Chutaro was a literal baby when their parents were murdered. Like, still swaddled up and crying. Mm-hmm. Chutaro was an actual baby child, and he is a child. He is still a child in this. He goes to- he's learning how to go to school. He's not very- he's kind of had to grow up, uh, thinking that, uh, Tenka is both mother and father. And when he kind of goes through this arc where he's gonna try to be a murderer, and you can kind of hear it in his voice, where it's like, I'm not a baby, but you are the baby. You are baby. And he's gotta- and this is where he gets to grow up, and I- I really want to compliment Steph on the point that Sora basically Tenka's him. Mm -hmm. That he- he keeps his little brother out of the loop, and he is- he is his- he is his brother's son, yes? But anyway, back to my point. Terry does such a fantastic job, and, like, I know Hardy did- uh, I, I want to say this is why Terry- Terry Doty's acting is the gold standard for how uh, little boys are portrayed. She is phenomenal at it. And if you- if you've never given- if you think that, like, MMO Junkie is, like, the first time Terry Doty was, like, actually a good actor the entire time, you're really selling her short. She's a, a great actress, and I- I'm actually kind of sad that she doesn't get, like, a ton of, like, more overt leads. Obviously, she does have work, but I- I just really want to compliment her, because she- she got me to cry a couple times in the show. So... But crying isn't a bad thing. <laughs> crying crying is not. Crying does not make you weak. 
and nobody exemplifies this better than Noah Clue. <laughs> God damn. I mean Tenkakumo. Because guys, can we all be in agreement that Tenka is literally just Noah? Yeah. I don't know. Kind of, maybe. I don't know. A I little mean, bit. You know how Hardy mentioned the fact that he was the youngest of three brothers? Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but I am the oldest of three brothers. So Tenka's role as the, you know, the, the, the oldest brother of them. Yes, Megan. You nailed it perfectly. <laughs> Tenka Kumo is a fucking trip. Um, <laughs> that's the only way I can describe him. Yeah, to, to the point that is... Me Megan made his uh, his image of him as dressed up as a woman. Woman. The image of our Skype chat, or Just of our Twitter uh, chat. Tenka's, Tenka is, Tenka is, I, I don't want to say he's the heart of the show, but Tenka is, Tenka's kind of the soul. Yeah. Um, he's the, moral the heart, ground. He's, 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 his morals are kind of fucked. Uh, but just to, um, <laughs> anyway, playing Tenkakumo in what was actually his actual first lead role in any anime, as of the time of when the show was recorded, is Christopher Waycamp. Christopher Waycamp, before this, was characters such as Ren, uh, uh, Renikotsky in Fairy Tale, Yamada in Level E, and Ichihara in Bakken Test. Hardy, take it away. Uh, I have a confession to make, actually. Uh-oh. What? Um, when I first watched this episode, the first episode, a few years back, if you can believe it, I actually was not that impressed with Christopher Wakeup in the first episode. I'm not <gasps> surprised you say that, actually. Yeah. Because I feel the exact same way. It wasn't until a few episodes in where everybody settled in and got into their characters to where he really he really stood out and did a really good job. But I think, again, because the roughness of that very first episode kept me from going back and visiting the show and for another couple years, um, because we've said before that, you know, Chris Wakecamp is one of our favorite actors among our group. And, uh, yeah, I, I kind of... I think this is really the only role, and it's only for like the first few episodes to where I, I, I didn't really buy it. But then, yes, he gets a whole lot better as it goes on. So, um, especially during Tinka's more jovial moments when he's like, he's drunk or he's pouty or he's standing out naked in front of the sea. God damn uh, it. <laughs> Idiot. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think. It started out rough, but then as it went on, it got really great, and he really brings his life to Tinka as a character. He's this over-the-top, larger-than-life, big-brother type who's always doing doofy stuff and being a nerd, and uh, and then yet, he when he has to man up and be the big brother and be the big hero in this situation, he really pulls it off as well. So, yeah. That's all I have to say. Stop. You know how I said I'm not surprised that you actually said any of that, Hardy? Because I feel the exact same way. Um, here's... Okay, so reminder. I Last time I watched tried watching the show, I only watched the first episode. Part of the reason why I dropped it was I didn't understand what the show was trying to do. The other part of the reason was actually this performance. I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'm not going to lie. Because for the... Like Hardy said, for the first few episodes, this was really rough. 
Um, I mostly blame it on the show not knowing what it was going to be quite yet, um, and the cast trying to figure out what it was going to be at this point. Mm -hmm. But... I also agree with Hari that once it finally went into the direction that it was meant to go, Chris definitely settled into the role rather nicely, and it came out a lot better, um, for, in my opinion as well, because he kind of grew into it a bit more. It wasn't as it wasn't as like it's like the first few episodes of this. Either you get very weird, gruff, you get comedic, you get doofus, you get. Like, serious, you like, you don't know what Tenka's trying to be. And that's the problem. But once we get to, like, the third or fourth episode, that point where it really starts to slowly give that tonal shift, that's when it gets a bit more settled into what it wants to do. And that's when Chris can finally settle into the character a heck of a lot more. So, while, in all honesty, if you try to watch this show, you need, the big thing is you need to, in general, you need to get past, like, the first three episodes like bar none because that's after that point that's when it really starts to go where it's supposed to go so the first three episodes are not the best judge of this performance for sure it is very rough all things considered and you can tell at that point that this is his first lead role but you can also tell that they don't they didn't quite know where the character was going at that time so there's a lot of factors working against it but once it really got to that shift it worked out a lot better, and he got to settle into the role, and it actually was a fantastic performance after that. So, this entire performance is predicated on the idea that we don't know where the story is going, right? Mm-hmm. So, with Chris waking up, I don't think that they intended to make it uncertain about where they were going, because they had obviously seen the show, and they had cast uh, J. Michael Tamina to be the writer of this, which is good because it's loose and fun and Chris Wakecamp plays it up really well as this older brother character who really is kind of balancing the two parts of an older brother, which an older brother is supposed to keep his younger brothers from worrying too much, but also keeping them forward on the momentum of, I want you to be the best that you can be. So Wakecamp's, uh, he goes up and down his inflections a lot. Like he's got this voice that um, is goofy and I don't just mean the drunken scenes but I also mean in the scenes where he's really uh, he, he wants to be the mother and the father of the trio because their parents are dead Wakeamp really seems to understand the necessity of putting on a bold face for your older siblings because they're already worrying too much you want to try to take away some of that uh, that sorrow that they're feeling, which they obviously have a lot of sorrow because their parents are dead. And Wakecamp's portrayal of that is to really convey a sense of confidence and not just because he fights a lot. Like, there's a scenes where he is uh, supposed to be really goofy, but then you see him fight against samurai. Like, um, I'm sorry, they used to be samurai, but they're now people who are basically ronin because they don't have a master anymore. So he fights against them, and he tells them that what you're doing is no longer noble. So Wakecamp understands the sense of serious and goofy that his character has to portray. And near the end of the show, where the entire dynamic changes from being goofy to, let's stop the snake demon, he really also gets that sense of being in control of the entire situation. Um, 
The only other thing I have written on here is that he's gruffer in his voice so that he doesn't have that sense of uncertain naivete that some of the uh, other military people have. Like, um, um, what was it? It was Joel McDonald's character had that sense of, I want to be tougher, but I can't quite convey that because I'm younger and inexperienced. No, uh, Chris Waycamp definitely has that sense of experience to him. So it helps cover all of the... I'm in charge and I don't need to prove it to anyone mentality. So all the qualms that you guys had about I um, like not quite thinking the show knew what it wanted to be, I don't get that from Chris. I get that he quite knew what he wanted to be from the very beginning. That's hard to believe because even the show, like not not the show, even the dub didn't know where the show itself it was, was go- going. going. Mm. They I'm, I'm literally watching... confess that. I'm not gonna lie to you. Okay, if they, I did they confess on like a an interview oh, or yeah. a commentary? Ah, oh, Steph watched the commentaries, didn't you? <sighs> See, I haven't seen the commentaries yet. I really like Chris as as Tenka. I will agree that it is the reason I find it more gruff is that they when he's kind of putting that over the top mentality, he makes Tenka go really deep. Mm-hmm. And that I don't feel matches up with the character design. Same, yeah. Mm. Very much, and that's that's what it is. <laughs> but like when Tenka once you get into uh Tenka knows that he is gonna be killed. Uh or he starts the plot where he, he makes everybody think that he's gonna get killed. Um that's where Chris really shines and like, honest to God, when he, in in his execution, when everybody in the fucking village shows up, and he's like, "Get a life, <laughs> everybody, just get a life," and it's just such a—he's such an energetic person, and you can tell that there's so much passion in Chris's performance as Tenka. Mm-hmm. Like every amount of it, no matter how flawed, is genuine and passionate. He made that in that in the, this is a character that calls for a a larger than life performance in it um especially when he like he said i am your there's parts where he's like i am your mother and your father now mm-hmm. like and he goes out with like half the makeup on and he shows up <laughs> naked he he whines he bitches he complains is there a cure for a hangover but to me, I think one of the other really big highlight moments for Chris's performance is in the last episode where, um, and now now I know what you mean by where does Sose ever show his uh, vulnerability. It is when he lean, he falls back tired and Sose catches him yep. and he says, can you give me a moment to rest? And Sose's like, you pulled all this shit and you're asking for this? Dude, what the hell? And, and he goes, if you were in my situation you would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Tenka eventually gets to lay on the ground with his arms over his eyes, and it's the first time you ever see Tenka come close to crying. For a guy who uh, very openly says, it is okay to cry. Yes. Crying does not make you a wimp. Crying is the mark of a, of a good man. And Tenka is a good man, and I think Chris's performance really gets that across. And now we have to go from Chris to Soromaru's actor, to which I am the middle of three siblings, technically, because I don't talk to my oldest siblings, therefore they are dead to me. But of the siblings that I, I do talk to, I am the middle child. 
And for me, Sora is a deeply personal character because Sora has a lot going on for himself. He is the middle child. He is trying to become what he thinks is strong. He doesn't always do the right thing. He's not doesn't do the smart thing. But Sora is also an anime character that is portrayed with a, a very intense post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, very intense PTSD. Mm-hmm. And the first time I watched the show, I was absolutely shocked that, number one, that it would a, a show like this would show that, and number two, that they would be very respectful about it. And that characters don't make fun of him for it. They are like, dude, you need to not bottle this up. Let it out. Um, so Sora has is a character I deeply connect to and very personally connect to. And playing Sora is Dave Trosko, who you will know uh, as of 2014 as characters such as uh, Ryo Nakazawa in Big Windup, Hayai I- uh, Ichimonji in Burst Angel, and Yahiro uh, S- uh, Samukawa in Guilty Crown. So, Hardy, if you don't mind going ahead. Yeah, I'll uh, just make this real quick. Um, I think Trosko did a really job, really good job. Uh, he had to pull out a lot of emotional aspects in playing this character. Because uh, as someone who has gone through such deep, deep trauma in the past, it really called for a very emotionally uh, advanced performance. And I think... Trosco really gives him that emotion. If I had any criticism to give, I'd say that he does sound a little bit too old. He does make Soromaru sound just a little bit older than he, sh- he should be because Soromaru's probably like 15 or 16. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think he does a really good job. I have no complaints. Yeah, I kind of have to agree with everything except for the fact that Here's what I thought about Dave in the beginning. Because I thought Soromaru was the hugest fucking little edgelord in the beginning. Like an, like a little emo little edgelord. That's my opinion of the character in the beginning. But then, of course, once the show goes where it's supposed to go, like, Soromaru is definitely a very, very complex character that Dave really gets to sink his teeth into. As both... The middle child who is trying to surpass the older brother to his post-traumatic stress disorder with the murderous family and just the suppressed memories of it. Like, if there's any complexity with any characters in the show, it is Sora Maru. There is a lot going on with this character. Mm-hmm. Some of which is just absolutely bonkers. But... At the end of the day, Dave Trosco does so well balancing every aspect of that character out. And probably with not as much experience compared to like normal, like other actors who are normally lead roles, for example. Um, but to be able to encapsulate every bit of the complexity and the personality of Soromaru into this performance, I'm really impressed by Dave. And I am very, very sad that he doesn't get that opportunity to play lead roles like this ever again which is very depressing because I would love to see more of it but yeah Soromaru is definitely the most complex character of the show and Dave just does such a fantastic job balancing out every single aspect of this character and every eccentricity that this character has yeah there's a lot of um, uh, personality quirks that 
uh, the character that Dave has to portray without being cheesy. Like, that was the thing when reading the synopsis of the show that I was worried about, was that when you have a middle child character who wants to uh, beat their brother, like, like, he really, he clearly, his arc is about fighting, beating his older brother. Yes. I was worried that it was going to make him very um, difficult to deal with as a lead character. But uh, Dave does not give him a whiny affectation to his voice. He actually gives him a very serious voice that... What did I actually write down? It was... Um, um, like, even when he's being condescended to, he's got a very believably confident voice to him. Like, he understands the not only the importance of their family, but also in uh, following in his brother's footsteps. Because his brother has a lot of respect amongst the people around him. Like, there's an entire episode right before we find out what the uh, the Orochi's curse is, that we find out that the, the town views Tenka as sort of the light of their city. Like, you know, they come out and say, like, he's our big brother, or he's our savior, or, like, he's the light in the darkness. And in that sense, Dave Trosko portrays him, or portrays his character in a way that doesn't really emphasize uh naivete or emphasize youthfulness is like a guy who like will get over that or, like we see the arc of that especially when he tries to go to what was the character um he goes to go so say and says can you teach me how to fight not because i want to be stronger but just because i want to be stronger than my brother i want to be worthy of my brother and it's a real shame that we're not uh, we don't hear too much of Dave trusco anymore because that portrayal of the voice is very natural. It's almost like he had experience in it. So, yeah, full props on Dave Trosko for portraying the character because Soro is the kind of character who I think the average viewer, the sort of, like, middle school, high school, maybe even college-age character, or not character, person, the otaku, would see as, like, yes, this is exactly how I feel, and I want to better myself, uh, like this character does. Sora, for me, is a character that I I deeply get as somebody who has a mental illness hmm. and who has a mental illness that makes her incredibly emotionally unstable. Because Sora is emotionally unstable. And it is, a lot of it is deep, deeply routed in the, the PTSD that he has regarding his, his parents' death and a lot of the guilt that he has because um, in his in the flashback um, the reason Tenka gets hurt is because Sora tries to help fight off um, who we end up finding out is Shirasu mm -hmm. Shirasu did kill their parents uh, it's not, not Tatum but Robert McCollum killed their parents Yes, and the reason that uh, Tenka gets, gets basically mortally wounded for Sora is that Sora uh, lets he doesn't attack him quietly. He lets himself be known and Tenka takes the shot for him. And magic snake bullshit later, this is how Tenka survives um, overall. But to me, the thing that Dave really brings to Sora is that he makes Sora sound like a kid who is forcing himself to grow up. And But at the same time, he can't get past what hurts him and you see it a lot in the scenes where Sora freaks out about his 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 flashbacks his triggers um because Sora is openly a, an anime character with a trigger 
he in episode two he outright freaks out that Chutaro touches him on the neck. Even though Chutaro was playing with him, and Dave makes it really believable. And the the second kind of moment that really gets me is the absolute crying and screaming where Sora is grabbing onto the gate in front of the noose. And he yells, You're our mother and father! You can't die in us, you bastard! And just, it's it's like getting... It's like Dave Trosco comes to your house and punches you in the gut. Which I don't think Dave would ever actually do. No. He'd serve us pizza, uh, though. He'd, uh, he'd serve us pizza, <laughs> but... It is such... It's a, it's a powerful and moving performance. It's my favorite one in the show. It's, it really resonates with me. And that's a lot of the reason I really, really fucking love the show is Sora is such a, he is a typical and approachable character, but he's also very deep and complex and very atypical in how he, his, his illnesses and his issues are portrayed and just to, to, to give another really big big credit to both Robert and, and Dave is that scene I was talking about in Sose's office where uh, essentially um, Shirasu's got his arms around Sora and Sora is just frantically crying and screaming trying to get out of his arms and in that moment he didn't just make uh, Sora sound like a, a, a teenager. He made him sound like a scared child. Mm. And it is very visceral. And I absolutely loved it and I really stand with everybody else saying that like man it is a shame that he doesn't get a ton of lead roles anymore and mm. this is because of his work outside of of, of acting. Right. Mm -hmm. But right. Um, he is absolutely phenomenal in the show. Like like honestly, check out the show if you're if you're curious about it just for his performance alone. So, with that being said, we're gonna move into final thoughts. Hardy, take it away. Yeah. Um, so you can eat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's not a perfect dub, but considering that it is officially the second simul dub that Funimation has ever considered, it's not perfect, but it's some damn good work. They actually consider it the first. They do consider it. Okay. They, they consider it the first. It's, they they themselves consider it the first. Then Space Dandy is just some its own little thing, I guess. Yeah, Space Dandy yeah. is like it's like a, its own little thing. But they consider this one to be the first simul dub. Right. And considering that it is the first simul dub, it's some very solid work. There's a few rough patches here and there, particularly in, in earlier episodes, but they gradually get ironed out as it progresses. And uh, at the end result is is a really solid, good product uh, for a really great show. And, uh, and yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this being basically the first simul dub of anything, it has its flaws, considering what's going, what's going on with that time. And, again, because the production and the cast of the show didn't know what the heck the show was going to do. Um, and it wasn't until basically the point where we knew where the show was going, they knew where the show was going, which was kind of, which is kind of the give and take, um, this early on in the simuldub era here, um, and producing these, these English dubs a lot faster. But overall, it's definitely a very solid dub. It's very, very, the show itself and the English dub are both 
criminally underrated. Absolutely underrated. Um, Because in terms of the show itself, it's a lot of fun. Like, I enjoyed it, especially once we know, once it starts hitting that tonal shift and going through the dramatic moments and all this complexities with these characters and these arcs, it's very compelling. And in terms of the dub itself, it boasts probably a very, very interesting main cast. Because the th going back to the three brothers, you didn't quite hear these individuals in leading roles before, or that, or at least get this close to a leading role before. Um, in more probably more in Terry Doty's case, but overall, this is a lot of fun. Like it's a good show. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad Megan has basically forced me to rewatch it because I've never if I hadn't. I would just be stuck with that opinion that I originally had from episode one. Is like, ah, oh, this is, I don't know what this is. It's kind of rough. I don't think I'm going to go with it. And I would have just never came back to it. So thank you, Megan, for forcing me to watch this show. And <laughs> Shut the fuck up and watch the show. Yes, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Megan. But yeah, it's it's a solid effort. You Again, you need to get past the first three episodes because that's when it really kind of, the story starts to really kick in. Um, once you get past that point, you'll enjoy it. Well, I kind of disagree on that point because the first couple episodes, sure, they don't explain the plot very well, but they do a great job of explaining the characters and getting us to care about them. Like the dynamic of the family, the three brothers and their manservant who turned out to be an evil bastard is really compelling to watch. Manservant's um, a good, too good of a term for Shirasu. Fuck it. God. I don't have a proper term for it, but you, you know what I'm bitch. talking about. Yeah, sure. They're bitch. No, that's not even right. <laughs> But th yeah, this is this is a show that I feel like may have gotten its better due in uh, a time period in an older otaku time period where shows like Veroni Kenshin or Inuyasha, uh, like shows that really were it fascinated with the the Meiji time period or the Edo time period would have really resonated with viewers. And in watching this, I don't really mind the fact that it happened to be the first of the simuldub era because. I'm, I'm, I'm watching this in 2019, so I'm watching it completely separate from that. And it's really fascinating to watch these actors who I know are going to go on to have good, strong careers, and a couple who I know are going to move on from the, the voice acting sphere, really do a good job in portraying what the, the, the loose, fun dynamic of the show is supposed to be. Now, in Lilac, you're telling me that they did not actually know... And by them, I mean the writers and directors didn't know what the show was going to be like nope. when they first starring it. Um, that that kind of worked to their advantage because they kept it loose and fun when it's a show that is loose and fun in those first couple episodes. And so we get they get to experience the revelations, the twists as we do. So sure, I guess it, it's a double-edged sword, really. It, it, it's it a double-edged sword, Noah. Like it's. Sure, you get to follow along with it like we do, but can it could also mess with the story and the character progression. Maybe a little bit, but it it's seems like the way the creators were so, uh, it's the way the creators want us to be. Like Still. the creators obviously did not want us to think that um, our uh, our our Robert McCollum character was going to be a bad guy originally. So I like. Okay, um, when watching this, because I watched this uh, over the span of the last week, it was really easy to watch. Like, I watched uh, each episode, and when I got to the end of it, I did not believe that it was the end of the episode because it, the time had flown by so quickly. So, strength of the writing of the actual show itself, 
but also the strength of the voice actors, this is a show that I can easily see catching on in a time period where there wasn't as many strong shows to compete against it. So I don't have a qualm with any one voice actor, I don't have a qualm with the writing, and I don't have a qualm with the direction of it all. This is a show that I can easily recommend to just about anyone who's looking for an afternoon to kill. Because it's only 12 episodes, there's no extra OVAs, there's no, well, to, uh, yet there's no licensed movies to watch yet because we haven't licensed them yet. Definitely go check this one out. It's a distinct entity in the Funimation canon that is really fun to watch. Whether you're an anime fan or a history fan or just a I want something fun to watch on the screen fan. So this is, like I, I've mentioned, this has slowly become one of my all-time favorite shows. Like, this series does a lot for me. I am somebody who very much enjoys the aesthetic of the show. I'm very much um, somebody who really likes the way that these characters are written. Mm -hmm. um, especially a character like Sora, mm -hmm. like to the point where I actually have a cosplay of him being made. Nice. Yeah, I'd like to thank- I know she's not gonna probably watch this, but I'd like to thank my friend Jenna for being the best and letting me commission her. No, I, 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 I'm sorry, Megan, I have to ask, are you getting a wig design for this, or are you going to dye I have a wig hair? in my closet that I'm going to, uh, okay. style. Okay. But no, I mean, like, I legitimately have the full outfit. Like, I just buy the boots. Um, are you getting the swords fabricated and everything? I'm gonna make them. Oh, cool. I'm nice. going to attempt to make them with my friends who <laughs> are, like, robotics people. Um... So, no, I, I, and one of the things I think that made me really fall in love with the show is its dub. I love this cast. This is, to me, one of my favorite, sim would, which could be considered one of my favorite simul dubs, if not one of my favorite dubs. I, I genuinely love the cast, and I love the people who work on this. I, especially, it's so weird to especially say Chris Wake can't because he's essentially become my friend. Um, <laughs> Chris is like my friend now. Um, we love you, man. We love you, Chris. I'll see you in August. I'll buy um, you a beer. <laughs> I already told. I already told him we're coming. So, um, yes. but no, I just, I just, it's hard to explain. This is, this is a show that I, I, I do agree is criminally underrated. I, you never hear mm -hmm. people talk about the show. I, I've encouraged people who are fans of Studio Dogokoba who animated this to, to go back and watch it. Um, just people who like this type of show it's a mix of action drama comedy and it just seriously just go fucking watch the show <laughs> watch the damn anime uh, so with that being said if you would like to watch the damn anime you can watch it on Funimation.com <laughs> uh, you can also buy it there is the regular original release that came out and I believe this is also getting uh, essentials I believe I believe the essentials release is coming out in June or July so you can now get it for cheaper um I guess I'm just going to run through everybody's Twitters really quick because we need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, if you want to follow the goat man, that's at Space Man Hardy. If you want to follow the cartoon man, that's at No Clue. If you want to talk to the lady whose boyfriend walks into sexual jokes like a golden retriever, <laughs> into a whoa, whoa. <laughs> that is Anime Review. And if you want to listen to me shitpost, my name is Megan. Thank you for watching my brother, my brother, and snack. Also, if you want to follow us, follow us at Dub Talk Podcast on YouTube, Twitter. You can also donate to our Kofi. Now this is the end of the episode. Thank you for watching my brother, my brother, my brother, and snack. Have a good night. Otaku on, everyone. Otaku <laughs> on, my friends. That was the quickest Wow. Holy shit. Speed, go speed racer, go indeed. <laughs> yes. All right. Otakuan, my friends, and aloha. <laughs> Don't become a demon snake. Bye.
still have to watch the um, the commentaries on uh, the discs for a couple of the episodes. I can't do but... it. I can't kill her. <laughs> there's a co- there's a joke in there somewhere. I'm not. There's sure. a joke God, about somebody's somebody somebody's husband said that to them. Does this warrant an oh my? I'm gonna say no. <laughs> Time out. Just this can get cut out of the episode. As of right now, uh, it's Terry Doty talking about her husband having to kill a chicken. Oh wow. Jesus. Yeah. He's choking his chicken. No. 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 Well, no. God back on damn track, it. Noah. Finish your thoughts. That's going in the blooper reel. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, God. "Oh God, no."